That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Hands on or hands off? How do you want your owner to be? How do you want your boosters to be? How do you want to be as a sports fan of your college teams, of your pro teams? Hands on, meaning, do you want the owner involved in the day to day? Do you want the owner to be the face of the franchise? Do you want the owner to lean in in a way that, you know, might not necessarily be the best case scenario? Jerry Jones with the Dallas Cowboys immediately pops to mind. I would anticipate with looking ahead at our key contracts that we'd like to address, we'll be all in. I would anticipate we'll be all in at the end of this year. So when you say is there any thought, uh, I think we'll strain our, uh, we'll, we'll push the hell out of it. Do you want your owner to be hands-on? Do you want it to be hands-off? I have uh, uh, no sound today from your hands-off owner or trustee with the Trailblazers, Jody Allen, not making public comments, not appearing on radio shows. I've asked to talk to Jody Allen. Blazers don't want to put her on this radio show or anywhere else. They don't want her to do a State of the Union. In fact, if she did a State of the Union, uh, I doubt she'd say much of anything. What are the advantages, what are the disadvantages to a hands-on slash hands-off ownership situation? I'm left thinking about it today because even in, you know, college athletics, we have seen cases where some donors have rolled up their sleeves and gotten involved in the NIL space, and maybe it's good when donors like the guy at Miami uh, want to help fuel the programs, fund the programs, buy players, do all the things that, uh, I don't want to say good collectives, effective collectives. Can you know what I mean? I don't want to say that a collective that's got its sleeves rolled up and is dictating personnel moves for the college program, I don't want to call it a good collective. Because I think the best kind of collective, like if I could just step back here, the best kind of collective in the college space would be a collective that raised a bunch of money included a whole bunch of corners of the fan base, not just the affluent, most elite donors, but all corners of the fan base felt like they were vested in some case or felt like they were stakeholders. And then said collective funded the entity, and then everybody just went to games and ate popcorn and hot dogs and drank beer and sodas. Don't have to drink beer at a game. And then just cheered for the team and went, gosh, you know, the $59 that I gave to my collective really does seem to be making a difference. So you'd feel empowered by that. That would be the best kind of collective. But that's not the kinds of collectives that we see in college sports. What we're seeing are the affluent, most affluent donors 
people who can't afford to write six and seven figure checks and not blink not really expect to see a return on their investment they don't need a tax write-off they don't need to put it down as an an expense because the uh the collectives are not 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 501c3s as they some of them started that way but they have not ended up that way and in the end those kinds of donors are given the money dictating what happens and they're very much hands-on the guy at miami is a great example of this now oregon with Phil Knight certainly being involved in Division Street, along with some others, feels like it's got kind of this oversight over the personnel at the University of Oregon that it comes with the territory when you make a $500,000 or more donation. And that's what I am told the minimum buy-in is for Division Street. Half a million dollars or more, and certainly there are some or mores in that conversation, it gets you no say in the room, but I do think Division Street is providing Dan Lanning with some oversight with, hey, like, here's some philosophy, here's some angle, much in the same way that a player personnel de- uh, department in an NFL team would operate. And we're going to hear later in today's show from SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. And I taped an interview. It is about a 35-minute interview with Greg Sankey earlier today. I put chunks of it online at johnconzano.com if you want to get a tease or whet your appetite. But the entirety of the 35-minute interview could not possibly be transcribed and put in one place. It would read like the manifesto for the Unabomber. And so instead, what I've decided to do is play that 35-minute interview in two parts today, starting at 4 o'clock. And what you're going to hear from Greg Sankey in part of the interview is his belief that college athletics is different than the NFL and his belief that there are such dramatic differences, including the fact that NFL players don't go to class on a Monday, that you don't really need to worry about college football losing itself. I raise a question about selling out to TV or seating control to television companies. How much is too much? I raise a question about the NCAA tournament. Is it healthy to talk about expanding the tournament? Teaser, spoiler alert, Greg Sankey wants to expand. He makes the argument for it. I don't like it. I disagree with him on it. But that's what he wants to do, and he's the SEC commissioner. You'll hear that all at 4 o'clock. But I want you to ask yourself, or you tell me, do you want your owner to be hands-on or hands-off when it comes to your pro team and, frankly, your college team? Because... Those who donate to the NIL Collective and write seven-figure checks are very much stakeholders and owners. Now, it's done differently in different parts of the country. You have, like, the University of Miami and the University of Oregon, who clearly have a donor who's got a face and a name and a personality who's involved in the collective. And, you know, at other places like Washington State with the Cougar Collective, Arizona State with the Sun Angel Collective, you have a very different philosophy. Arizona State, their game here is, hey, we have more alumni than anybody. We're a bigger campus. We're a bigger university. We've got bigger. Uh, we've got a bigger base than anybody. And so they're playing a numbers game, and they're just saying to people, hey, everybody donate $99, and we can really move mountains with that. It's a numbers game that Arizona State's playing. Oregon's making one phone call and two phone calls, maybe, three phone calls. Uh, are there five people they're calling? I don't know. But I can tell you this, 
when when the NIL space opened up and I first started kind of poking around it, I found it really interesting that that representatives at like Oregon State, Arizona State, Arizona and uh, Washington State want, really wanted the exposure. They wanted to come on the show. They wanted the head of their collective to be interviewed. They wanted to talk about and promote the idea that, hey, for $149, you can be part of the NIL collective. You can get something. You can support your program. And as I called Division Street, Inc., found an email address for him, reached out to him, crickets. No reply, no interest, don't have a face, don't want to bring their people on. They're, they're lying low. Laying low? They're laying low and just want to keep their head down and focus on the business of NIL. And there's just multiple ways to do it. So in a college context, maybe it's better you have a stronger collective if you have a hands-on approach with an, with an owner, air quotes here, owner. And from an NBA, NFL standpoint, Maybe the happy ground is somewhere in the middle. You want somebody who leans a little into it, but you don't want somebody so heavy-handed and so arrogant that they think they have all the answers. Kansas City Chiefs have the Hunt family that, uh, you know, Lamar Hunt's kid is running the organization. His kids, grandkids are all around. And you've got, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs, though, leaning with an owner who leans forward, but not an owner who thinks that they know football not running the team, not making personnel decisions, not coaching, really leaving it to Andy Reid. And then, you know, just picking up the trophies at the end and making some comments on the stage. Very different approach than what you have in Dallas. Very different approach than you have in in some of the other places like in the NBA. Certainly with the Dallas Mavericks, before Mark Cuban sold his controlling interest in the team, he was visible, he was high profile, he was involved, and the Mavericks seemed to do okay with Cuban leaning into the operation. But I just want you to tell me, what is your personal preference? Let's just say the Trailblazers are your team, if they are, or the Seahawks if you're, are your team, if they are, or the 49ers or the San Francisco Giants or the Dodgers or whoever your team is. Like, do you want a hands-on owner? Do you want a hands-off owner? And what are the pluses and minuses of that? 503-417-7575. Can we have an intelligent conversation I know I'm supposed to come on like radio show hosts and talk show hosts across the country and ignite a debate, say something outlandish, pit you against the next caller, but I I just rather have an intelligent conversation about what kind of owner you think works. Because I've talked a lot about the congruency of vision that has to happen at the top of any successful sports entity. I don't care if you're a Little League team or you're the Dodgers, you better have your ownership group, your general manager, your coach, your players, and your staff lined up. And if it's a little league team, maybe it's you know the commissioner of the league and the coaches who coach the team and the team mom and the players, you need to have a congruency of vision. Otherwise, you, just things don't happen right. And we've all been part of things when, when there's not a congruency of vision, when you've got, you know, like a an owner or a president of an operation, let's just use a company in a hypothetical, president who does, doesn't really know the business, but you know is frustrated with the bottom line, pounding his fist on the table, interrupting the actual business that's going on, 
and you've got like maybe a general manager or some kind of manager involved that is focused on their own sort of, uh, you know, 20 square feet and not really the vision. And then you've got like a coach or, you know, a, a, a manager, middle manager who doesn't really get it. And then you've got employees who are just there for the paycheck. Like that's not going to work. That's a losing recipe. But if you can get an owner who's got enough of a lean into the business, but enough awareness that they don't pretend that they know the business, they defer to the smart people they hire, but you know they, they sort of line it up for the next person in the, uh, in the food chain. And then that owner or that, that manager or that coach or the general manager in the sports sense you know, hires the right coach who has the same vision, lines up the timeline, roster of the staff looks good, talented. They're not overworked, spread too thin. You're not walking around like a bunch of lame companies do saying, we need, you know, to do more with less. Like, we've all heard that. You've heard it. I've heard it. Hell, I, you know, I, everyone, my neighbors have heard it. You got to do more with less. It just means we don't have the budget. We need you to pick up some extra duties. Sorry, you're on fumes already. That's not going to work. The Trailblazers are in that position, and they've got an absentee for an owner. And it's really sad to see what's going on. But you tell me, 503-417-7575, hands on, hands off. Because I miss the days when Paul Allen could be seen courtside. May he rest in peace. At least he cared. Like, I actually don't think Paul was that crazy... Uh, and off base as a uh, basketball NBA owner. And I think he had a little self-awareness in the NFL uh, you know, genre. He saw a New York Times piece. He did a Q&A with the New York Times when the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl for the first time. And he made the comment. He said, I don't really understand and know the NFL as well as I know basketball. And I thought, gosh, that is a really smart thing for a guy like Paul Allen to say. Hey, I own the team. I have the money. I don't have all the answers. I'm going to hire smart people and let them come up with the answers. And he did. John Schneider, Pete Carroll. The Seahawks' success in large part came, I think, by virtue of the fact that Paul Allen was leaning into them and then had enough awareness to go, I don't have the answers. By the same token, I think some of the misfires in Portland came because the rest of that New York Times Q&A was Paul Allen saying, I feel like I know the NBA. And, you know, he may have understood or admired or appreciated great talent. He may have seen something in Patty Mills that made him go, hey, we should take that guy with the second pick. But Paul Allen didn't understand team chemistry, locker room, dynamic, especially from an NBA standpoint. Different locker room in the NBA than NFL. Fewer people, uh, more uh, more of a tight, uh, tight, you know, kind of a tightrope walk for the coach. Because if you have one or two people askew in an NFL locker room, you're fine. But if you have one or two people who are not lined up in an NBA locker room, you have a problem. And the Blazers locker room became that problem. And so I actually kind of think that like, if Paul Allen had maybe just been more of a fan, less involved from a Blazers standpoint, he was happy to raise the flag of the 12s at Seattle and you know pump a fist and be Paul Allen the owner, but not be as involved. It might have worked out better. I don't know. Hands on, hands off. 503-417-7575. Tell me what you think. Steven, hands on, hands off as an owner. Well, it, it's not black and white, but if it is, I have to go hands on. But it has to be 
like you said, everything has to be in symmetry, right? Like the coaching staff, the ownership, the GM, everybody, the players, it's got to be all aligned in one thing. And I think that does include the ownership being out there and being vocal and having their hands on a little bit, right? Like I don't want my owner to be like Jerry Jones and be a part of every single conversation. I don't want him to be even necessarily like Paul Allen was, who was so invested in the NBA draft. He loved the NBA draft. He had to make moves. Like that was his thing. It's like, you know what? It's the draft is here. I have to make a move. No, you don't have to make a move, but I want you to put your input in there. And I do want you to say what you say, but then leave the decisions up to the guys that you hired. But I want you to invest that money into the team. So I think it is more of a hands-on approach, but you play that tricky game, John, where you let the owner get their hands in there and they, they're going to want all of it because that's the way they are. And that's the way they've been in their business world. They, they've gotten that to where they are that way by taking advantage and taking opportunities. So you have to play that tricky game of here's some, here's some power, but not every single part, bit of power because you are not the expert in this field. We are the experts in this field. We have trust. We got to be on the same page. So it's hard. It's hard. And I think here in Portland, like you can't be totally non communicating I can't talk communication uh, with the fan base. Like the, like Jody Allen is a Burt cold, but you got to have something, but you can't be too much. It, it's that tricky situation where you got to have somebody you can't have it all. I think I miss, though, seeing an owner visible with the Blazers. I mean, they're just the easy example because they're right under our nose and they're struggling. miss seeing an owner who cares. I miss seeing an owner who I know is vested. Jody Allen isn't vested. It's not her money. Like, you know, she's a trustee. She's not into this thing for, you know, $20 billion or whatever, you know, a team would cost you over the course of 30 years. Like, we knew Paul Allen was making the payments. You know, he was... He had the payroll. He it was his name on the on the lease. Uh, you know, people had people with the Blazers had corrected me over the years, and they said, "Well, technically, Paul doesn't own the team. Technically, it's owned. It's you know controlled by Vulcan Inc." And I'm like, "But we know, we know. We saw Paul Allen on the baseline wearing like you know a hat that needed to be broken, you were holding some popcorn, you know, looking a little awkward, but still, you know, we knew that he cared, and I kind of missed that." But I also am looking over at like the Dallas Cowboys and maybe some other franchises that have struggled with a heavy-handed owner, and I'm going, okay, we don't want that. You know, you don't want somebody who thinks they have all the answers. And the part of the problem is, you know, I don't know how many billionaires you've talked with. You know, I I have probably have communicated with two or three. They generally seem to think they have answers that regular people don't have. It's part of like they've had success, they've made money, they've risen to you know, to be an expert and to be uber wealthy in their respective genre. And some of them are really smart people. Like like Paul Allen was a savant when it came to, like, building a computer. But he didn't know how to build an NBA roster. He proved it. Like, you know, we saw the lack of chemistry in Portland. So sometimes these billionaires have think they have all the answers. Or the groups, if it's a group, it could, you know, conceivably be even worse. Because if it's a group of owners, you have sort of a struggle for control. And you have multiple voices in the room, a lot of voices in the room, and that you know potentially could be problematic as well. And I also right. think I was yeah. gonna say I also think the danger of letting owners be so hands on is a lot of times they deal with it just with money, like they're gonna throw money at the problem. And when teams do that, that doesn't necessarily work either. Look at like the Brooklyn Nets back in the day with Mikhail Prokhorov, or even the New York Mets with Steve Cohen right now. Like they just spend money to spend money and put band aids on it. That doesn't work either. So it's like you can't have the owner just 
throw money on it. You can't have the owner be all over it. It's got to be that, you know, that uh, a little bit of both, man. You got to have it hands on, but hands off at the same time. Hands on and hands off at the same time. You need that balance. It's a tightrope to walk. Uh, the guy who's coming up next, Kyle Smith, Washington State men's basketball coach. Holy hell, they're having a remarkable season. They're half a game out of first place in the Pac-12. Uh, they are in action tomorrow, 3 o'clock in Pullman, where they will uh, try to uh, grab a, a share of first place in the Pac-12. Kyle Smith, he doesn't have all the answers, but he's a great story this season. Washington State's men's basketball coach is next. Washington State men's basketball, it's been a great story. We talked to Kyle Smith earlier in the season, uh, just catching back up with him. They have caught lightning in a bottle. They're playing as well as anybody, not just in the in the conference. They're getting the attention nationally. Kyle Smith joining us again. Um, you and I talked off air about this, but, you know, when you're playing well, like, knock on wood, just kind of keep it going, <laughs> don't talk about it. Is it. What's that like for you? There, there's definitely some truth in that. Um, you know, I've kind of doubled down a little bit on, you know, obviously – play of our young point guard miles rice of uh early in the session you know as good as he gets that that gives us a pretty big ceiling and he teams to keep him so I've, i i've kind of doubled down on that one but as far as the way we've been playing the way we've been defending and everything else and just uh just a good group that's uh pretty even keel um and uh i think that's kind of one of the keys to just preparing the same way staying in a routine and when you're playing well just kind of embrace that the two on the Oregon swing, you held Oregon State to 58 and Oregon to 56, and I thought, gosh, they're kind of finding new dimension. But then when I look back at your scores, I mean, you played that way against Utah earlier in the season in Colorado. You held them down below their average. Defensively, what are you getting out of this group right now? You know, we're just really big, period. <laughs> um, I think we're uh, our wings are 6'8", our four-man 6'9", and our starting center 6'11". We bring another 6'11", guy off the first guy off the bench, and then a 6'7", do-it-all um, wing, point guard, power forward, and Kamani Hwinsu. So we're just really, really big, and that's our those seven guys take up the majority of the minutes. So it makes it hard to score around the rim. We're one of the better shot-blocking teams in the country. We force no turnovers. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we forced a lot last night. It was eight, uh, but uh, but we're just hard to score over, and we're a pretty good rebounding team. So that's that I think that's made it just hard to get a, a easy look uh, is uh, what it's looked like from our end. I was you know a couple of your fans, diehard fans, were asking me why aren't the Cougars ranked higher, and I said it's probably the non-conference schedule. But when you look at what you've done, you know, in in that first quad especially on the road. You have, I think you have three quad one wins on the road, and it's remarkable. Was that intentional, the way you scheduled in the non-conference? 100% in this day and age. And we obviously we had some attrition um, with some, you know, our goal was to retain guys and it didn't work out. And uh, so we didn't, you don't know what your roster looks like till we probably weren't complete till sometime in June. And there was, a, you know, it's just, and we're like, well, we're going to have some new faces. Um, even though I knew our talent was pretty good when we all got together, I was like, you could be very talented, but without any experience and without any building any confidence, um, you may not, you know, you may not get to where you need to go. And we had a, that team that went to the final four in IT. We never, we, we kind of kicked it in real late. So it was about getting our team put together as quickly as possible. Um, you know, not, we weren't ready for any big road, uh, games or whatever. I just felt like, hey, Let's see if we can grow this team, get better, and be honest. Our first, you know, first um, close scrimmage. I mean, we had to 
get an Isaac Jones block shot to beat a Division two team. So we've we've grown a lot, <laughs> and it's just it's just like nine new faces. So that was kind of intentional, and it's worked out really well. From a personal standpoint, you know, we've talked about this before. You lose a guy to Villanova, a guy to USC, NBA attrition, and, you know, you, you replace it with Sonoma State and Big Sky kid and a community college kid, and, you know, it's remarkable. But is it is it more gratifying for you because of the way this all came together? Are you having, like, you know, you've coached a long time. Are you having kind of a, a nice season as a coach and a teacher in that way? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, every year is different when you return the same guys, and it's just uh, it was just kind of how it fell into place in the spring as far as the, we really doubled down on um, getting guys with great attitudes that really want to be here and they're willing to work. And um, it just kind of fell in where some of them are grown really close together. I mean, they uh, go to the same Bible studies and stuff like that. So it's kind of a it's a group that's rooted in some other things other than NIL and, and playing time. <laughs> they're, they they kind of – you know, that was intentional, too. I was like, well, at least these guys got things probably a better perspective and what's really important in life. So that's what kind of need to watch. And, you know, as a coach, you're always learning, too. And, and uh, they, uh, their confidence, or I shouldn't say as much, uh, Miles obviously a really confident player, but the, the other guys are kind of quiet, go about their business, and uh, they just just been growing as they've knocked. You know, they had some success. You know, it's usually really hard to handle success, but this team seemed to gain confidence moving forward it's funny i talked to another coach who said you know he wants to recruit guys that don't have cell phones and because yeah. you know, and i said yeah that would be ideal you know if you can find a yeah, kid who's yeah, that, not that find one good luck yeah is he, is he recruiting for a ninth grade team yeah i mean like, <laughs> say, like there maybe you got a middle schoolers that don't have it but even those guys have phones. i always think about that you remember when you were a kid you'd come home from school be like three o'clock whatever if you're not at playing a sport or later if you are and school was behind you. You didn't bring it home with you. And I think about kids and even your kids on your roster, and I call them kids, but, you know, yeah, the noise. Sure. There's just constant oh. noise. No, I, and that's just we, we address it every day and trying to – I mean, I was – well, even six years ago, I was, like, trying to, like, hey, man, I, there's nothing good that happens online, the Twitter, blah, 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 you know, and all yeah. that stuff. And, and I had some guys that would step up. Now it's like as you get them now, they've just – they're all been raised on – uh, screen time and stuff like that. So it's like I just, you know, try to coach them up on how to manage that stuff and tune that stuff out, and it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, what people say or do. And, and getting going down those rabbit holes is is not good for anybody, good or bad. And then and then you'll see a feature like where Steph Curry's checking his Twitter at halftime, and I'm like, oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> like, the best, one of the best guards of all time. He, he's, it's giving him mojo, you know, his motivation. And Clay, I'm like, oh, goodness. I'm like, ah, just out, tune it out. Kyle Smith with us, uh, Washington State men's basketball coach. Um, obviously, you'd love to draw better at home. you got Stanford tomorrow, 3 o'clock. I know there's some Washington State fans who – uh, listen to this show and listen to the podcast. It would love to be there. Make an appeal to them. What What does it mean to your guys to look up, you know, having a great season and see people, it, you know, in, in one of, you know, I know you have another three games at home. Yeah. But to see people tomorrow, 3 o'clock, when you play Stanford, what would that mean to them? Uh, I just mean, that, you know, just honor what these guys have been doing. They put themselves in the hunt for this uh, last uh, Pac-12 season, as we know it, or Pac-12 team, and it means a lot. And, and honestly, I think it was a misprint. I think we had a few more than what was published in the <laughs> last night. It was pretty good, and the students are coming out. So I, I think these last four we have coming at home, I think we'll draw well. We got Stanford Saturday at three, 
Um, then we go down to Arizona, and we come back to finish the season with three more at home. So hopefully we're building some momentum. I told our guys that as we were building the program, been around and looking forward. Somehow it's always the last piece, and but when they get there, they're 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 there. Hopefully they're tuned in. They appreciate what these guys are doing, um, and we'll have. They're really good support. Yeah, you can always. There's always room on the bandwagon, right? Like, oh yeah, we, we <laughs> yeah, no question. We're not. We don't discriminate. I'm not that guy. Not, I'm not that guy. Where were you? Where were you? I'm yeah. like, welcome aboard. Come on in. You're, Come on in. We beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> uh, Washington State ten and four in conference play, nineteen and six overall. You mentioned, um, you know, guys are big. I think you're the second biggest team. You're really long. When I watch you play, I go, gosh, those passing lanes. Good length, really good defensive team, good rebounding team. Can a team built like that? Do you need? I guess do you need athletic perimeter play? Do you need better guard play? What do you need in the next six or seven games to kind of, you know, make this team ready for tournament play? Yeah, um, I think that's fair. I mean, we're like a, you know, we lost Joseph Yesifu to a hip surgery, who was an explosive perimeter defender, uh, just perimeter athlete, and that could score. Um, and that would have been, so we've kind of pieced it together and, and no team's perfect. I hear those guys on ESPN and whatever saying like, Hey, there's not a perfect team out there. I think that's right. I think there's no, no team that's just like has everything, um, figured out. But, um, but I think you gotta lean into what our strengths are. I think just like I said, that the size that the skill, I mean, look, those our starting group when they play together is really got a unique chemistry and on both sides of the ball, I think. And, and, uh, the scoreboard usually goes the right way. And it's about getting, we got a couple of freshmen that are Isaiah Watts and Ruben Chinulu that, that as they get more comfortable, you know, freshmen go up and down and they get better where they can do it on the road and, and blend in there more than, than I think we get better. You guys are, I mean, it's just fun to see you guys playing the way you are. And I, t- I said the other day, I said, I think, this team could be a Sweet 16 team, as, oh, good, geez. as good as you are. Jeez, there's the toxic, there's the toxic <laughs> noise. We're we got a lot of work to get this out of it. We're not like we got a lot of games left. Knocking on wood, knocking yeah, on wood. Yeah. But look, no like Arizona's number five. You beat Arizona. There's not that much gap, and you're right. There's everybody's flawed. You get into a tournament, yeah. like I wouldn't no, want to play you guys. No, I that's a no. I got some believers on this team, and and. Uh, as far as their confidence in themselves in a good way. And they're like, oh, you know, I was like, hey, there's like, we're praying for it. I said, I said, hey, pray for, make sure we're in the tournament first. Of all. <laughs> make sure that's locked up. I said, one step, you can't, you can't advance without getting in it. And you know, we won't know till we win the Pac-12 tournament or selection Sunday. So, uh, you know, and just trying to think that it's all part of just trying to stay one day at a time, just keep improving. Um, it's tough, 18 to 22 year olds, and like I so said, they have all kinds of uh, media outlets. They're going to talk about stuff and interviews and everything else. But I mean, you can't avoid it. You got to deal with it. And hopefully, our guys are, are prepared. And I was proud of last night because we got a lot of attention this week. And and I wouldn't have shocked me if uh, you know, like Indiana State was ranked and they got beat at home. And first time they've been ranked since yeah. Larry Bird was there. And so I was like. You know, trying to tap into those things like, hey, fellas, it's, you know, we got to handle it. And, and our guys played in Cal. I thought played hard and we, we just made some good plays and you know, it was a good win for us. I always say you're never as good or as bad as people say you are. And you got to remember that. There you go. And that's a great. Give me a, that's a, I'll use that. Use that. Yeah. Uh, give me an idea. At the end of last season, you know, and I think Oregon State's women's program was going to Scott Ruick. I talked to him just yesterday. 
you know, they were they were feeling like, you know, the conference thing was hanging overhead. The portal has been a problem. I know you were you were it was not your best days at the end of last season like you and in the spring, you know. No. How did you get through that? How did you cuz you you pulled it together. So help the rest of us out like people who may encounter some kind of adversity or struggle. What did Kyle Smith do? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's like a whirlwind. It's unfortunately every spring has become like when you take a new job. And I always say to this one, a lot of guys won't leave jobs because you know the next six months of your life are going to be hectic. I think you're taking guys, everything's going to take times as long, and it's just it's just really stressful. You're on the phone twenty four seven, and you're just trying. And, and it's a crapshoot. I can't lie to you. I mean, I, I call I. I say it's like playing Texas Hold'em. You get two, you got two in your hand, and you're waiting <laughs> yeah. for the flop, and then the river, and like just say, "Hey, what do we got?" And then you find out, no, but but there's, I'd like to say there's a lot of magic, but we just had a lot of oars in the water, and we got a really good staff, um, and you got hard if you're in Pullman to recruit and everything else, and um, you know, and I thought we were settled. And we were in pretty good shape. I knew we, were, we had Justin Powell. He tells me he stayed in the draft, and I'm like, huh? And uh, he was given a nice, you know, honorable mention, all-league type player, and and uh, we really didn't completely replace him. And it's like, well, we, even with all the other attrition, I was like, that was a dagger, and we somehow we were able to survive that. And it's just like I said, there's always the same number of players out there. So, you know, see so guys leave, it's more of a – a little more drama than it's reality. You know, it's like, okay, because there's other guys out there. The hard part is getting them acclimated quickly. And, yeah. you know, a guy like Dan, Dan Altman's been able to do it. But it's hard to do it every year. You know, yeah. you'll see – who did I see the other day? I was like, you know, like uh, Ed Cooley's struggling at Georgetown. And, and, you know, they have some money to put some players in there. He's a good coach. And it's like, it's just a different – it's just guys that are good coaches get a funky hand that's worked with year over year. So it's, it could be – you know, before in the past, you know, as much attrition, your program's going to stay at a pretty solid level, but that that can change a little bit. He's nineteen and six, ten and four in conference play, uh, just uh, a half game back of Arizona in the standings. Get Stanford uh, tomorrow in Pullman. If you want to check it out, three o'clock. Uh, Kyle Smith, congrats to you. Keep it going. I'll see you in Vegas. I can't wait to see you at the tournament okay. and see what you guys look like. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It is remarkable if you think about it, what Washington State was facing at the end of last season. And we talked with Kyle Smith on this show, and, you know, he was pretty down. I mean, DJ Rodman goes to USC, loses another kid to Villanova, couple in the NBA draft that probably could have stayed, were kind of on the fence, staying, going, and it looked dire. The conference is changing. I do think Washington State's got a looming problem because I think, you know, Kyle Smith's going to get job offers based on what he has done this season. But it's a good problem to have if you're Pat Chun, the AD at Washington State. Like, this is not a bad position to be in. Uh, you know, w- will Washington try to hire Kyle Smith away? Will someone else? Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But uh, Pullman, Washington, tomorrow, 3 o'clock, Stanford at Washington State. They get Arizona next week and Arizona State. That'll be an interesting road swing for Kyle Smith's team. But right now, I, I have Washington State and Arizona penciled into the conference championship game. I think they're going to be the one seed and the two seed. I think they'll play through. Um, you know, I, I do think UCLA is a big disruptor. They're playing much better. Mick Cronin has them playing better. Oregon's always dicey. Oregon can beat anybody on a given day. They're good enough and well-coached enough. Colorado's streaky. Arizona State has been underwhelming to me. 
And the rest of this conference really is starting to slide back. I, you know, I'm looking at Utah and Washington and Cal and USC and Oregon State start sliding back. So not as wide open as I thought it was going to be about two weeks ago. But right now, I see Arizona, Washington State in the title game. I think UCLA, Oregon, and Colorado are contenders uh, that could could disrupt. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. I rather enjoyed that talk with Kyle Smith, the Washington State men's basketball coach. That's how it should sound. Coach is having fun. His team's winning games. Washington State's dangerous. It's a good coach. Problem for Washington State is going to be that, uh, you know, people are going to come calling. And I don't know that Washington State will be able to retain Kyle Smith among uh, suitors who uh, chase after him that are going to play in conferences that aren't going to be playing like a you know WCC basketball schedule. Uh, there's a problem for Oregon State and Washington State with that schedule. On one hand, the WCC is not a bad basketball conference. Top of that conference, especially in men's basketball with Gonzaga, is pretty good. But there's a reason why kind of the middle of that conference and the bottom of that conference does what it does. Um, the middle and bottom of that conference is sort of bogged down by the idea that athletes that are going into those schools, A, are not receiving the NIL money that other Power 4, Power 5 conference schools are getting, and B, there's a matter of, you know, I don't know what the answer to this is, but there's just a matter of time where at some point, if you're playing a bunch of WCC schools and you are saying, hey, no, 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 we're a power, we're funding like a power five. But you're playing a WCC schedule over and over and over again, and that's who you're playing. You're playing St. Mary's. You're playing University of Portland. You're playing, you know, there just becomes a point in time, like, is it one season? Is it two seasons? At some point, you kind of become a WCC school in the eyes of recruits. That's kind of the problem that Oregon State and Washington State are facing. At some point, they become, you know, like maybe there's an issue there. And I think that is going to be the thing that Oregon State and Washington State are going to fight. Can you get away with doing it for one season? Probably. You could probably sell your roster on it. And if you're pouring in NIL money at a, at a rate that is higher than most of the WCC schools, you're going to recruit better. You're going to get good players. Maybe you retain your players, but like there's a problem facing Washington State. Can it retain its coach? I don't think it can. I think Kyle Smith's probably going to end up somewhere else in a year, but let's see what the, how this season unfolds and develops for Washington State. To this point, he is, you know, that team is dangerous. And I do think that team is a Sweet 16 team if it stays healthy. It's just big. They're long, they're good defensive. That's a team in a tournament that can, that will be a very tough out. Oregon State is, on the other hand, stuck with Wayne Tinkle. There's no other way to say it. They owe him $8.7 million. At the end of this season, uh, there's going to be a, a real question, like can he retain the players on his own roster? Will somebody come calling for Jordan Pope, um, You know, who is, I think, Oregon State's easily their best player. But Oregon State doesn't have guys. They're young, and they're not very talented, and, and it shows on the court. But $8.7 might be a little rich 
might be too much for Oregon State to make a move. Feels like it is, given that so much of what they're facing is about money. Do you really want to be in transition, going to you know going off to play the WCC schedule, and then also going, hey, we're going to break in a new coach among it, amid it. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and recruit to that. I mean, it's just asking a lot of whoever would get that job. And within the WCC, there's a huge difference between what the teams in the top two or three positions are earning and spending on NIL. On the men's side, you literally could say that the top four teams in the WCC are outspending everybody else. They almost go right down the line, one, two, three, four, in the rankings of what they spend and how much they invest in players, and that's just kind of how it unfolds in men's basketball. On the women's side, I don't know what's going to happen. In particular, I don't know what's going to happen to Oregon State. That's the one I'm watching because Scott Ruick is cooking right now. That team, they're ranked 11th. People are asking, you know, how good can they be? Are they a Sweet 16 team? Yes. Are they an Elite 8 team? I think so. I think with a Portland Regional, Oregon State could end up playing in a regional final with a chance to go to a Final Four. They're that good. And they're, they've got Reagan Beers. They've got depth. I like that they're, you know, the player that we all kind of looked at last season as their best player, uh, Talia Van Offen. She is not their best player this season. And she's sort of a contributor. Like they, they've just have, I think, developed into a better team and they're dangerous. But I am also going, okay. Let's say they make a regional final. Let's say they get to uh, Portland in the regional final, and you know they're one of the best. Uh, they're in the Elite Eight, and they're playing for a Final Four. What happens next year? Can you retain those players? Will the NIL collective at Oregon State step up? Will the players stick around? I don't know. If, if you're going to play a WCC schedule, I don't know the answer to that. Or, or can you sell the players on... The idea that this is a one-year thing, and then after that, um, you know, we'll uh, reevaluate, reassess, move forward. I'm really curious to see that. I'm really curious to watch that unfold and develop. Super tuned into that. It brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, it was the worst kept secret in the Pac-12 conference. Commissioner George Klyovkov and the Pac-12 have parted ways. They made it official today. Reports earlier this week that they were working towards a settlement and a separation the Pac-12 conference today, midday, made it official. Here's George Klyovkov. Six months ago, Pac-12 media day in Vegas. I was there. Klyovkov was there. Well, it's a combination of knowing where our media rights are going to land and being very confident about that and understanding the commitment that all of our schools have had for 12 months to each other, despite all the news articles about people leaving our conference. And I would say, you know, the, the most speculation has obviously been about around Colorado. And I would just direct people to the interview in the Denver Post earlier this week that Chancellor DiStefano did. There's George Klyovkov just days before the conference itself 
unraveled Colorado left, then went uh, Oregon and Washington, and of course, the splintering of the conference on his watch. How much do you put on George Klyovkov? Well, if we're talking percentages, I'll put you know a cool twenty five percent on the uh, former commissioner George Klyovkov. I'll put another twenty five or so percent on Larry Scott, the commissioner that that was his predecessor. Clearly, the path to destruction was laid by Larry Scott. No way around that. But if we're really assigning blame here, I'll probably put another 40% on the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors who failed to lead or maybe were impossible to lead. I think, uh, you know, one of my big criticisms of Klyovkov was that he did not manage his board. And then, you know, other people believe, like, they were unmanageable. And in the end, I'm left thinking about, you know, Klyovkov's tenure, his presidents and chancellors, and how they just failed the failure of leadership. It really is like if you're going to title the, the book to the destruction of the Pac-12, it's, the, it's a failure of leadership. That's it. You know, it, it, it really is. I mean, there's no mystery here. It was a failure of leadership in so many ways. I, and again, I'm, I have 10% of blame that I've held back, right? Because 25% on Klyovkov, 25% on Larry Scott. 40% on the on the uh, chancellors and presidents of the conference. The other 10%, I'm going to put on television. I think Fox and ESPN are playing a dirty game. They have seized control of college athletics. The conference commissioners have ceded that control too easily to television. And I think one network in particular, Fox, they obviously want to own it all. I had one athletic director in the 11th hour of the Pac-12's downfall tell me that Fox was trying to own it all. And in the end, Fox got what it wanted. Greg Sankey is the SEC commissioner. I did an interview with Sankey this morning. It spanned more than 30 minutes. We talked about Chip Kelly's proposal to split away college football. Sankey doesn't like it. We talked about the NCAA tournament. Sankey wants to expand it. We talked about... The landscape of college athletics, how different is college football from the NFL? Sankey says there's big differences, and he's holding on to them. Leave it here. You'll hear it next. Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. He's the longest-tenured Power 5 commissioner and one of the most powerful voices in college athletics. I sat down with Greg Sankey today for a candid and lengthy one-on-one discussion. We talked about the landscape of college athletics, the future of the college football playoff, the NCAA tournament, Nick Saban's retirement in Alabama, Chip Kelly's idea that football should split away from other sports, the downfall of the Pac-12, and how college football is different from the NFL. It's still different, isn't it? That full conversation is going to air here in this hour. So if you know somebody who would love to hear this conversation, Greg Sankey speaking one-on-one, candid, wide-ranging interview. We even talked about the book that he's reading, what's on his nightstand, what's on his desk what podcast he listened to, some fun nuggets buried in this interview. Uh, Make sure that you alert, text a friend right now, tell him to get here to this radio station, or send him the link to this podcast if you're listening via the podcast. Uh, That interview in its entirety, here we go. I have to know what it's been like for a conference commissioner in the last year or 18 months as the sands of college athletics are shifting beneath everybody's feet. What has that experience been like for you, Greg Sankey? I, I always go back to the COVID summer and, you know, everything obviously changed 
and I don't think it's ever reset. Um, the pace and the intensity. And so you go through uh, that experience. We come to the summer of 21. We were at the, at the heart of expansion and conference membership movement. We come back to the summer of 22. Uh, it was the USC and UCLA move. We come back to the summer of 23. Uh, the good news was it didn't happen on July 4th weekend, which has been the tradition. The few days you get off in a commissioner's chair and you see a, a, a wholesale change in the landscape with what happened around the Pac-12. So that's in addition to litigation, state legislation. We now see state attorney general activity, NCA changes. It, it um, you know, I spend less time focused on games and more more times focused on all of the other work that that's not related to the games themselves. The, the, you mentioned the Pac-12, the downfall of that conference. Um, some have said it's it was inevitable that there was going to be consolidation. Um, I was watching it, and I, I look back and I see a number of things that could have taken it in a different direction. As it was happening, what were you thinking? Well, in some ways, you know, looking back, it, it's easier to Monday morning quarterback, and we're all making judgments in, in real time. Um, you know, I have the benefit of you know, knowing people and, and hearing things and having a responsibility to track. So I knew there were some turbulent waters, but I expressed at the time last summer just not, I don't know if I were used the word surprise, but, you know, it's disappointing to see. I never thought the type of consolidation was inevitable, and I think everybody involved has had opportunities to uh, avoid what's happened but again that's monday morning quarterbacking you respect that people made judgments in real time and now we're going to have to turn the page and life goes forward greg sankey is with us sec commissioner yeah you you're a runner are you still running you listen what do you listen to when you run what do you think about when you're running these days um yes i do still run uh, I will confess, as we speak, last night I attended a concert with Toto and Journey, at least that their logos and what's left of those bands. Yeah. Now that I'm in the gray hair group at rock concerts, I, 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 I hit snooze on the alarm. When I do run, um, you know, you and Wilner are on the podcast list on a regular basis. Uh, in fact, there was a time last spring I had a staff member with me you guys interviewed me, George, um, a number of other commissioners. I went back and replayed all of those. Uh, I was driving back from Athens, Georgia. And it, it's interesting to go back and look, and you probably do it, uh, to kind of analyze what's been said, uh, what's then happened through, through a different lens. So uh, I will do that from time to time on runs. I might grab a podcast from two years ago of someone that, that I intersect just to hear what they were thinking then and think about what it means now. What jumps out to you when you go back and, and you listen to those and, and sort of, even as you hear yourself? I self-scout in retrospect. I started doing that intentionally after visiting one time with a former speechwriter for President Clinton who was very complimentary of me in some ways and then uh, redirected how I communicate. And I, I had to think about it. So, John, I'll go back and and listen to what I've said uh, and evaluate it. I'll, I'll use the COVID summer. I went through every ESPN or SEC network interview I gave 
and, and I did that in like December after football season ended because I wanted to judge what I'd said and I'd been on point and I provided answers and perspective had I given hope, which I think was one of my responsibilities. Um, so I, I, that one uh, I'm in depth. The others are more superficial that, you know, Hey, that comment held up well, or maybe that comment didn't hold up well, or, you know, looking back, there was a lot more to the story than we realized it, in a particular moment. You know, it's interesting. I do the same thing. I go back and I'll listen to shows and I'll go, oh, that was bad or, or no, no, that worked and do that self-scouting. I think that's important. And, you know, we're watching now uh, Nick Saban, a coach in your conference, um, you know, who is retired. We're seeing this uh, across college football and college basketball where some of the longtime coaches have decided that this is the time to retire. What do you make of that wave of retirement and, and the landscape? A few things. One is, I spoke when Jeremy Foley, who was a longtime athletic director of Florida, was stepping down. And he asked me to come speak to the entire department, and I said, the reality was Jeremy Foley was always going to retire. But we put that thought aside because we don't like to deal with change. Now, the reality in our society is change seems to be happening every day. So we like to think that um, a Nick Saban's going to coach forever. Obviously, that was never the case. He made a decision. Um, do I think the environment contributes to that? I don't know that it's any one thing for anybody. Uh, there's a lot that factors into the decision. You never want to make a, a life decision based on you know, one event. Uh, Nick clearly has had an incredible career, um, has a family around him, has a life to live, and, and uh, I, I look forward to continuing to interact with him. You know, others have, have likely been direct about the environment in college sports. I've spoken uh, before these recent changes from coaches, uh, well before, to say, okay, states, you've, you've uh, unleashed, if you will, name, image, and likeness activity. Uh, we now have courts weighing in on transfer policies. We should also be concerned we're going to lose really effective leaders, good people from the coaching profession. And I think that is a continuing concern that people look and say, I just don't know if I want to work in this environment. I'm going to go find another opportunity. And I don't think that's great for college sports. The college football playoff expansion coming, TV deal, I want to get get to all that. Um, more recently, Washington State's position, Kirk Schultz proposing that the Pac-12 be treated as a power conference. How is that going over among other commissioners? I can only speak for myself. And my observation is we spent four years trying to deal with a format expansion, one that the Southeastern Conference did not request, did not advocate to pursue, but worked as a good partner, operator to find a new way. Over those four years, everything in college sports has been touched by change, whether it's the COVID year, conference membership that we discussed, uh, name, image, and likeness activity, uh, litigation, NCAA changes, Charlie Baker's project division one, and I, I could go on and on. Uh, and the reality is we have to have a postseason postseason system that adapts. Um, I am not at all uh, a fan of continuing requests from different corners for special accommodation. 
we have not asked for special accommodation to this point. Um, and we'll see. It's, it's at the board level. It's not to the commissioners. We've stated previously of you as a group. It wasn't unanimous. Uh, but at some point, uh, we're going to have to adapt to the next two years uh, or for the next two years. And then we're going to have to rethink our approach to how governance is conducted and how decisions are made in this playoff if it is to work. The news where you and the Big Ten Conference has sort of formed a working group uh, was met with a lot of raised eyebrows. And what do people need to know about that relationship and maybe the, the mission or the aim of that, that partnership? Sure. We have some immediate realities. Um, how do we deal with um, ongoing litigation uh, where there might be opportunities for mediation? We've got a responsibility there. Uh, I think we can do that appropriately. Um, I've also learned and witnessed my comments on the CFP that big problems are not solved in big rooms filled with people. Uh, you have to narrow your focus a bit. And uh, there may be raised eyebrows. Uh, we certainly called in advance to communicate with colleagues what was going to be announced. Rather than do it in the shadows and, and have somebody report on it, you might as well put things out there. Um, it, it is not expansive. It is focused on dealing with some of the immediate issues. It helps to motivate ourselves, in my opinion, and if it helps to motivate other people to seek solutions and collaborate more effectively, so be it. I do think both leagues feel the responsibility of leadership at this key time, and that really informed the, the announcement of the advisory group. You'll note we didn't call it an alliance. We didn't have any Zoom calls. We didn't create logos. We simply want the opportunity for a group of our leaders and a group of their leaders to talk about uh, some of the elements of a path forward. Are the, you know, are the, I guess, why the Big Ten and the SEC? Why not let others in? Is it is that to your big room philosophy that you know as you start to expand that conversation, you know, you get too many voices in the room at some point. Uh, it is. It's also an acknowledgement. We don't have unilateral authority. Uh, the effort to conduct outreach, which was different than some of the other experiences I've had reading things on Twitter, um, was to at least communicate in advance. Uh, that doesn't mean the eyebrows still weren't raised. Uh, we also know we have a responsibility to draw people in. So if we can find solutions that draw people in, that's enormously healthy. This is actually much like the creation of the autonomy concept that was assigned to these two conferences uh, within the NCA structure back in 2012 to give a little bit more authority um, for some decision-making. That was still subject to the expansive NCA bureaucracy. Uh, it worked well for a period of time. I, I think the two conferences showed then we can be responsible with our colleagues, and I'm confident we can be responsible now. Chip Kelly and some others have sort of raised the idea of, you know, it just makes more sense for football to split away. It, how is that greeted, you know, as, as you hear that? Or how much more complex is the conversation than maybe, you know, uh, us just talking, uh, yeah, football should split away. I mean, there's other tentacles to this. I, I think it's much more complex than just the, the interview line. And I respect that people have that opinion. I, I look at it from our league standpoint in the Southeastern Conference, 
Um, usually that type of comment is followed by, well, then comp- other sports can go schedule regionally. That's where I kind of raise my hand and wave it to say, I don't know if you've looked at how we've made decisions, but we have maintained uh, a regionality. We've built upon that regionality in a special way. For our league, I'm going to look over the last year where we've had the number one NFL draft pick, the number one men's basketball collegiate athlete chosen in the NFL draft, uh, the number one draft pick for the WNBA, the numbers one and two draft picks in Major League Baseball. We had the U.S. men's amateur champion, the U.S. women's amateur champion. We had Nick Dunlap, an amateur, win a PGA event for the first time since Phil Mickelson. Uh, we're going to feed Olympian medalists into Paris this year out of this league. I think it is difficult to look a football player in the eye and say, we can do A, B, and C for you. But all of you really high-level achievers who are going to have great ac- economic opportunity, we can't do that for you because we're in a different system. And so I look at this as a holistic endeavor. Our football programs exist as part of our universities. They exist as part of our athletic programs. And, you know, maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I actually think what I'm offering here is the right perspective, that we should remain connected as programs and as athletic programs to our university, not simply break out of sport. Others will disagree. I've seen reports of uh, individual leaders like a search firm leader with private equity out there running around championing some breakaway for football. Um, I think that comes at a cost to the collegiate environment. The, you know, it seems as though Charlie Baker, he floats his proposal. It gets some enthusiasm, but a lot of, followed by a lot of questions. He says it's just a discussion. How was that received by the Southeastern Conference presidents, athletic directors, your office, when you hear that proposal floated out? Well, it creates uh, any number of questions, and I will take... Um, directly the observation that it's meant to be a starting point to create conversation. I've appreciated the opportunity for some follow-up conversation with Charlie. I think there's a lot more work to do. Uh, I don't read that document as at at or near a finish line. Um, So I go back to the observation that it was meant to start conversation um, and we're going to need to see how that plays out. And is I think we announced in, within our advisory group press release with the Big Ten, one of the topics that we, have, we will look to consider uh, together is how do you provide input and guidance as, as Charlie thinks through what that Project Division One idea uh, could become um, moving forward. I look at you and I say, here's a guy who came up on college campuses, worked a number of jobs, understands what it's like to work on a campus, and now we've seen a lot of non-traditional hires in, in other conferences for the commissioner positions. Um, how, how does that look from your vantage point, and is, is there a risk that we're losing the connection to the campuses as, as the conferences sort of seed control to TV networks and I keep think I keep coming back to you guys I think you being someone who has that experience on campuses has been hugely valuable to your members I, I certainly hope so and I've been in a conference office between the SEC and before that the Southland conference for a long time but that's still connected to campuses I don't know that the resume um, drives the change um, 
in fact, I challenge my own thinking on, on John a daily basis to think from a different perspective and how might this athletics endeavor look different if my resume were different. And I'm, I challenge myself with that to be quite candid. But I do come back from this long basis of having been a part of the higher education environment. I do think that's valuable. Whether people agree or disagree, it informs my question about the connection of the athletic department to the university. We don't just have sport programs. Uh, we have athletic programs. Uh, we provide education. I think that we are challenged now that the distractions of the transfer environment or the NIL environment uh, negatively impact the educational opportunities offered to young people that whether the cynics want to scoff or not do provide uh, a platform for the rest of their life. That's part one of my interview with Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. In part two, after the commercial break, we'll talk about how college football is different than the NFL. Is it still different? Is it still that different? Plus, uh, the ESPN television deal with the college football playoff. Will college football playoff games be behind a paywall on a streaming provider? Or will they be on linear television? Also, there's been fear about the potential expansion of the NCAA tournament. Will it kill the Golden Goose? Greg Sankey offers his thoughts on why he supports an expanded field. Listen to part two after the commercial break. I love interviewing the movers and shakers in college athletics, and Greg Sankey certainly is one. One of the most powerful people in sports. And, you know, if we were going to talk about a czar for college football, Greg Sankey would be among the candidates that I'd throw out there. Part one of our interview, we talked about the downfall of the Pac-12 and a variety of other things. In part two, I dove a little deeper on the college football playoff television deal, among other things. Here is the SEC commissioner, my one-on-one conversation. I have friends who want to know if the college football playoff games are going to end up behind a paywall like the NFL playoff games did. Is that part of the discussion? Will games, will playoff games end up streamed on a streaming provider and behind a paywall that's that's part of the work still to be done and that embedded in that is certainly with all of the new players in the environment um that 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 new media opportunity um has been part of the consideration i i keep thinking about when i grew up I, i i was naive i thought Pete Rosell was on my side, and I, I grew up and I found out that the commissioner of the NFL really worked for the owners. I thought, oh, he was he was we're looking out for the best interest of the game. How do we protect the game? How do we protect the sanctity of college football and and for people who want it to be different than the NFL? You know, how do we do that while knowing that Fox, ESPN, media companies, you know. As they take over, um, it starts to move away from what we've always known. In, in my experience, and that includes going to games on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, there is a clear distinction still between college football and, and the NFL game. Um, the intensity in our stadiums on a Saturday, early afternoon, late afternoon, or evening is unmatched. And NFL games are exciting, but they are clearly different. I I think there is a reality that populated 
our football coaches meeting yesterday where our coaches talked about the distinctions between the NFL game and the college game. And I'm one that thinks that that needs to remain. I, I'm not familiar with, for example, NFL players having to go to class on Monday. So there is that, that clear distinction. But, you know, the, the size of our stadiums, uh, the locations of many of our stadiums in these college towns versus uh, the nation's top 50 media markets, and then the ability to draw people in through, for us, when we pivot this fall to uh, the ABC opportunities is more over the air game so that people can experience that feel even from afar. I think all of that is, is part of the combination. And we're criticized for being professional sports. And again, the cynics will make that observation. But when I encounter young people, our football leadership council two weeks ago, who asked me, are we just going to become an NFL developmental league? And I said, well, tell me as a starter on one of our, our leading football programs what you mean. And he talked about the distinctions mm-hmm. and not wanting to see that happen, that college football should be distinct. It should develop young people and help them reach the goal if they want to play in the NFL. But uh, it, it should remain distinct from professional football. Where do you go on vacation? What's your what is your summer vacation? You get you're going to get away. Give us a get, Craig Sankey's getaway spot. There are a lot of places I've enjoyed visiting, um, but I have a little two bedroom place um, on Skinny Atlas Lake, which is in central New York. It's the Finger Lakes region. Uh, it's where I I grew up, and I go back there and I stop at a place called Doug's Fish Fry uh, for lunch and. Uh, I drive down, and this time of year, because I just checked my cameras, there's about six inches of snow that's emerged, but come late June through, you know, into October, it's a pretty special place. Did you go to Doug's Fish Fry as a kid? Oh, it, well, it, it opened my senior year in high school. So, no is the answer. We went to Herb's, which was the variety store right next to it. We'd go buy bubble gum and candy. And those sorts of things. Isn't it interesting how those uh, in th- those memories never leave? I mean, they're embedded in you. They're part. They're part of. And not surprised that you go back there even these years later. And it's you. You probably have just fond memories. Yeah, and my blood pressure drops. Um, it. it I, I never really envisioned purchasing a place like that. It's. Uh, uh, it's on the south end of the lake, which is a bit quieter. We have a nature preserve right across on the opposite shoreline, so there's no homes over there. It's spectacular in the fall. But when I when I leave the Syracuse airport to drive to our place, my pulse rate slows. Even if I'm dealing with work issues, my blood pressure is reduced, and I, I just feel better. And that may be in the winter. We were there. We went to an LSU-Syracuse game, and it was snowing horribly, but got to spend in there before traveling to our football championship game, and I'm, I'm looking forward to return in the spring uh, because it's such a, a place for me that is, is calming and comfortable. Yeah, that work-life balance is important, and I think a lot of people listening will relate with that. And how do you draw that boundary? Like, because I know the minute I go on vacation, what's going to happen? Something's going to implode. Somebody's going to leave. There's going to be a coaching <laughs> search. I have to think you, you feel the same way when you try to get away. Yeah. Well, when I was recounting the summer of 20, 21, 22, it was always like the summer of 22, I went to my lake place from a meeting and I was there on a Wednesday. So I thought 
Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday was July 4th. I got five days to read books, sit by the lake. And by noon Thursday is when the USC-UCLA news was breaking. So it just completely disrupted the whole month. All right. Um, you, 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 I, you have to be intentional, um, and it can't just be once a year. You know, these, these jobs are full-time, um, seven days a week, but you have to create separations. I do that through my reading uh, on a daily basis, through exercise, and then try to go grab some space here and there where I can. Um, and build in a, a, a few breaks. Uh, but you know, once, once we get to, to mid-August through Memorial Day and even the week after, um, it's, it's a nonstop roll. March Madness, uh, you know, before I cut you loose, I want to ask you about this. The tournament is wonderful. People love it. We celebrate it. Um, there's been talk about expansion. You and I have talked about this before getting, you know, possibly expanding the field. Where are you right now on possible expansion of the field in the NCAA tournament? I I communicated interest in that um, almost a year and a half ago because I had been at meetings where over and over people were were just fearful of things being taken away. Uh, We have some old systems in place that do contribute to the tournament, but we're leaving out highly qualified teams from a competitive basis. And I go back a few years, um, the University of Mississippi baseball team was identified as the last one in, and they won the College World Series. We've seen um, teams go to Dayton as 11 seeds and advance into the Final Four. And the way we, we allocate tournament berths some less highly competitive teams are given bids, and we exclude teams generally in that 40 to 55 range that are very, very competitive teams. And so my hope is that we can have a responsible look at, at tournament expansion. Um, I've never put a number to that, and it's, it's really driven on rather than thinking about taking things away while we try to in, involve the most competitive teams, we can think about creating opportunity. What I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose the mid-major in those upsets, and, and I get what you're saying. How do we hold on to that and not water the field down too much? Or what do you say to that? I, I would offer that you know, watering down the field is an interesting term because I don't think that's a one-way observation. Um, and, and highly competitive teams, again, those 11 seeds that have advanced mm-hmm. far in the NCAA tournament, uh, having more of that type of team involved does not water down the tournament. Um, I think the committee has been engaged in this review. Uh, I'm supportive of that review. I don't predict outcomes. I think part of what I have a responsibility to do, given the role, is identify things to be addressed, and uh, we'll see uh, what what they come out with. I I, I do, uh, again, go back to the reason I made the observation, uh, I think back in the summer of 22, uh, and a Pat Forty article was I had heard so many people concerned about things being taken away. So how about we pivot our thinking and suggest it doesn't always have to be the way that it is. What might be a way to draw on highly competitive teams and still keep uh, March uh, a focal point for college basketball? Greg Sankey, last question. You talked about reading. What's on your nightstand or what are you carrying with you on an airplane to read? 
I have it right on my desk. So I, I've read some fascinating books of late. One was about the breaking of the four-minute mile. There were three guys involved in mm-hmm. Australian, Roger Bannister we know about, and a member of the Kansas track team. Just looking, it, it was an introduction over the, the word amateurism on how that developed over time. Right now I'm reading a book called The Crux, C-R-U-X, How Leaders Become Strategists by Richard P. Rumelt, R-U-M-E-L-T. Um, I don't know that it's going to be one that draws people in from a page-turner standpoint. Uh, I have taken time after Nick Saban retired. I've read uh, a book that he authored back at the, 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 his, uh, during his LSU days, and uh, I read another book that was written by a, an author just kind of looking at his, his kind of a biography from the outside. So I've, I've permitted myself those now that he's retired. You want to write a book someday? Uh, I've thought about it. It's a matter of finding the time. Uh, <laughs> right. And I don't want to write a book that no one would read. I'd, I'd rather um, just send a couple emails to friends if those are the only marketplace. <laughs> but if I can put on paper things that I think can contribute to somebody's career decision-making, um, their personal development, perhaps their growth uh, from a faith perspective, maybe make some observations about what happens in college athletics. Uh, maybe there will be some interest in that. Greg Sankey, thank you for your time. Appreciate your candor, and uh, good luck to you. Make sure you, uh, you, you go for a run. And when you listen back to this podcast, I'll be curious to see what it is that you make of it. So I, I appreciate you joining us. Okay, I'll call you back with my self-evaluation. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I do. I hate listening to myself. I will. Can, can, I will. Um, I will share that perspective. But I actually make myself do so, um, and I'll do so a few times just to think about how I might have communicated something more effectively. I love that. That's great advice. Thank you. You as well. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks. Well, there he goes, Greg Sankey's the SEC commissioner. Really, really interesting interview. I want your feedback on it. Tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT, or call now at 503-417-7575. What did you hear there? What stood out to you? What would be the first thing you tell other people uh, as they go and, uh, and say, hey, uh, did you listen to Greg Sankey uh, on Canzano's show? Leave it here. You got the BFT. All right, there are a couple of things that Greg Sankey said, the SEC commissioner said, that I, I just do not agree with, don't agree with. I want to know what you thought, what jumped out at you. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Stephen, I know what jumped out at you. It had to do with NCAA basketball and the tournament because uh, you and Greg Sankey do not agree on that. Um, He believes that an expansion of the tournament would be good for the tournament. It would uh, capture some teams that are more deserving of bids and berths. But let's make no mistake, the SEC commissioner represents the sec and so what he's advocating for is let's get rid of some mid-majors and let's get more of those 11 seed types that are from power five conferences that are like the seventh eighth ninth tenth eleventh team in the conference you don't agree with him no i don't and his argument was well there's been teams that were the last teams in the tournament that got to the final four or Ole miss in, in the baseball tournament was the last team in and they won the national championship I understand that, but what his, what he's missing is is he failed to say when UCLA makes the Final Four as a first four team, we don't care as much. Like it's UCLA, we expect them to be really good. But when VCU does it as an 11 seed, that's when it's a lot of fun. When George Mason makes it as an 11 seed, that's more fun than when UCLA makes it as an 11 seed. 
And so I don't want to see a team like Mississippi State, who is an average SEC team, as an 11 seed or a 12 seed, make the Final Four. Like, that's not even that – it's not that exciting to me. But when it's a small school, when it's a mid-major school, that's when it, the Final Four is about. That's what about the NCAA tournament is about, when they make the Cinderella run. It's not a Cinderella run if you're playing in a Power 5 conference. It just isn't. And so that that's my problem with it. Like, he makes the points of, yes, this can happen, and the the 50th best team could make a run. But – it's not it's not about you know then win some games in your conference you have all the opportunities to make the NCAA tournament these small schools and these conferences have one chance to make the NCAA tournament and that's to win their conference tournament if they don't do that they're out you know what in the Pac-12 there could be four teams in, in the SEC there could be seven six teams in you have a chance to do it you have a lot of opportunities to win games just win more games in your season just be better and you'll make the NCAA tournament these smaller schools already are playing against everybody and now he's trying to make it even more because yes. A mid-major school at the top of their conference is probably not as good as the eighth-best team in the Big Ten. But you know what? On any given night, they can win that game. And so I, I you- disagree with that. I, I actually think that you know we we need to place an emphasis on the regular season mattering for something. And if you're going to take the eighth or ninth place team in the SEC and get and say, hey, um, you know what? You're going to get that. You're going to become the new 11 seed or 12 seed or whatever if you're adding teams instead of some uh, some of those mid-major teams. And it seemed to me that Greg Sankey wants to take away automatic bids to some of the smaller conferences. I think you're really losing the charm of the tournament. And the the SEC team that finishes 8th, ninth, 10th had its chance. It had its chance to make the field. It had its chance to play against the rest of the SEC and other Power 5 conferences, Power 4s, and... And, and get into the tournament. It had a chance to punch into the tournament. Part of the beauty of this NCAA tournament is I actually think that team that wins some small conference championship, whether you know it's Lehigh or Albany or you know George Mason or whoever, wins that small conference championship, that team is generally somebody who justified their existence in the regular season of the conference tournament or enters the NCAA tournament playing really well and I don't mind that. I like to see those teams. I think they're more deserving. Now, I I read everything and listen to everything Greg Sankey's saying through a prism of who is he speaking for? He's speaking for the SEC. Of course he's going to say this. 100%. And it makes sense from his point of view. And just for me as a fan, like I want to see these smaller schools get in. I want to see the one-bid teams get in i don't need to see the eighth best team in the sec get in and face off against the number one team in the big 10 and lose in the first round i guess that's not any fun it's the intrigue and it's the mystery of well can this small school the david versus goliath can they can david knock him off and get a win when i feel like it's a power five versus power five school john like i just don't feel like there, there's no david versus goliath it's, it's just goliath versus goliath and we've seen that matchup a lot of times you can watch that game every single week you know, uh, every, any any single SEC conference game or Pac-12 conference game, you can watch that every single week. I'm not going to see a team from the Big West taking on a Pac-12 school any single week, and and it's going to be the best team from that conference, the best representation. So I just, you know, if I understand that they're probably going to expand it at some point because there's going to be more money involved for the bigger schools, but I think it's just going to hurt the NCAA tournament in the end. Yeah, I think uh, I don't think he's going to get a lot of enthusiasm. He hasn't to this point from other conferences. So it'll be interesting to see if they, he can muster more. I also think something that jumped out at, at me as he spoke about the partnership between the Big Ten 
and the SEC. They've got this working group. They have not called it the Alliance. He made a joke about that. They have not come up with a logo. They didn't do a Zoom. You know, people famously remember, um, you know, the Alliance with George Klyovkov and Kevin Warren and the ACC coming together. I mean, this is um, this is the Big Ten and the SEC putting their heads together. And there are a lot of people watching this who believe those two conferences are up to no good. And they're watching it going, what are they doing? What are they plotting? Why are they, you know, and Greg Sankey says it's, hey, big plans don't happen in big rooms. Meaning, you know, it's this isn't about consensus. This is about the ACC, I mean, excuse me, the SEC and the Big Ten, the two powers putting their heads together and trying to, uh, trying to figure it out. You know, you may remember George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, former Pac-12 commissioner, Talking about the alliance, you know, there was nothing signed. There was nothing done. Today is a press release, but it's also a commitment. And it's a commitment among 41 institutions. And I would say what my parents taught me, which is um, don't measure me by what we say. Measure us by what we do over the coming uh, months and years and decades. And uh, I couldn't be happier about the alliance. And um, I'm okay with there not being a signed contract. We didn't even focus on that. Didn't even talk about that. No signed contract. Kevin Warren in the Big uh, Ten, you know, echoed that. It was good to hear your voice. And again, I think it's a great question. And and even though I'm a lawyer, I mean, but uh, one of the things that one of my uh, most favorite law professors at uh, Notre Dame would say that uh, uh, if you have to go back and look at a contract that you signed, you probably entered a deal with the wrong parties. And and, and there it goes. That was the alliance. Now, Greg Sankey kind of made a joke about that. And now he, they're partnering up with the Big Ten, and they're going, okay, we're putting our heads together. There was another nugget that was buried in the Q&A that, you know, I now have some information on that I wish I had when I interviewed Greg Sankey. Because I asked him about the CFP television deal. And, you know, he sort of alludes to the idea that, you know, sources say there was a deal. Now, John Orand of Sports Business Journal has reported that ESPN and – the college football playoff had this deal that they agreed to and that deal has not been signed it has not been signed by the CFP members and not been signed by the SEC and there's a chance here that ESPN pulls a deal off the table now i ask sankey he says well according to sources it's one of those sources say stories and then i asked him the follow up question about you know are we going to see college football playoff games that are behind a paywall streaming like the NFL playoff game that you know was put on uh, Paramount Plus and he says well that's part of the details that's being worked out um i think there's a little something up in the air right now with the Big 10 and the SEC spider senses are tingling and for those who were around when UCLA USC left and sort of the drama of the Pac-12 it just feels to me like the Big 10 and the SEC have their heads together this alliance, whatever, this partnership, this uh, working group, whatever you want to call it, uh, we both, we all know that they have things in common that others do not. And if I was Brett Yormark in the Big 12, or I'm the ACC, uh, or I am the Pac-2, or everybody else in college football, I would be a little bit worried about what is coming down the pipeline with Greg Sankey. Are you are, are you at all concerned that this Big 10 SEC friendship 
that that it turns into something dirty. Yes, and you taught he kind of talked about this as well of having the college game feel like the college game and not a you know a minor league for the professionals and for the NFL. And I feel like yeah, it's great to say that, but every action that's been taken within the last what one and one plus year, one and a half years has been to be a minor league NFL. And it's all about the TV. It's all about TV money. It's all about you know teams joining different conferences. It's to shorten it and to get the smaller schools out of there, the haves and the have-nots. Kick Oregon State, kick Washington State out of it. Like they're not involved. You know, they're not part of the minor league system. It's the SEC. It's the Big Ten. It's the Big Twelve and the ACC. And now we're going to pick and choose from the ACC. Get them to the SEC. We'll pick and choose from the Big Twelve and have them join. You know the uh, the Big Ten. And have that have it to be a two conference league and just do its own thing as a minor league system. I, I like it's great to say that you that the players want it and that he wants it to stay as a college system, but that's not the way that it's been doing. Every action has proven against that. So yeah, I am afraid of it, John. That you know the two biggest conferences, the two most powerful conferences, are talking to one another like, hey, we don't need these other schools, we don't need these other conferences. We can go off and do our own thing. He also took a shot at Washington State President Kirk Schultz, who is proposing to the Board of Managers for the college football playoff. He's a member of the Board of Managers, and you need a unanimous vote to get a change made, and Schultz has been the holdout vote to this point. He would like to have the Pac-12 treated as a Power 5 member for the purposes of the playoff moving forward. NCAA recognizes the Pac-12 as a conference. Schultz is saying, hey, we'd like to have this. Here's Greg Sankey's quote. He says, you know, um, you know, the reality is that you need a postseason system that adapts to what is going on in football. And, you know, he basically points out that, um, you know, the SEC has worked as a good partner and uh, the SEC has not asked for any kind of concessions or accommodations. He said, quote, we have not asked for a special accommodation. We'll see. It's at the board level. It's not to the commissioner's. And quote, Greg Sankey basically saying he's not on board with recognizing the Pac-12 as a conference of two. Well, of course not, because you know what he, he doesn't want? He doesn't want the Pac-12 to have an automatic qualifier vote in an automatic team that gets to the playoff, no matter how many teams that the Pac-12 gets. You know, Greg Sankey and the SEC, they would like to keep as many of these berths to themselves. They don't want to include other conferences. That those Those playoff berths are going to you know, be a, a windfall. It, yeah, and, it's the golden ticket, right? Like, you want to get your teams in there. It's going to be a paycheck. And, and that goes to the whole thing of me thinking this is an NFL system. Like, you want to get your teams to get to as far as they can. It's not It's not about the college uh, system that has been in the past. And I understand. Like, I love the fact that he wants to evolve the game and because the game is ever-changing. But they're doing it in a way where it's only going to benefit his conference and maybe the Big Ten now that they're talking to one another. I, I am really interested to see what happens next. What unfolds next on the uh, on the front between the Big Ten, the SEC? If I am the ACC and the Big Twelve and the Pac twelve, I am on high alert, watching watching what those others are doing. And it may just be that they're meeting, they're putting their heads together, you know, they're talking through ideas, they've got something in common. That's fine, but you just don't, you know, you know that realignment is a it's a rock fight. You know, my friend John Wilner has called it a rock fight. You just don't want to show up to. Uh, uh, the tug of war that is going on in major college football without a, without wearing a helmet these days. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. I love that we got Sankey on the show. Um, we're efforting other big guests, other conference commissioners. We'll get them. 
appreciate that he uh, made time for it, but you know I don't agree with everything that he said. I just don't. I think he he clearly has got the interest of the SEC in his mind. All right, leave it here. The five at five is coming up next. Been a good week of radio. I appreciate those of you who are tuned in, locked in, listen to the interviews, share the interviews. Got a friend who would love to hear the Kyle Smith interview from hour one. Washington State men's basketball coach, one of the best stories in college basketball. Fantastic interview. He was fun, interesting, engaging. I I think that guy uh, this March is going to be a coach and a team to watch. And I say those things separately because I think you're going to watch his team and then we're probably going to see somebody come after Kyle Smith, some other coach, some other program rather come after the Washington State coach. Really nice job this season under difficult circumstances. Can they keep him? I don't think so. But let's see what happens. Uh, hour two, Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner, joined us. Big fish. A lot of buzz. George Klyovkov out with the Pac-12. Greg Sankey talking about the fact that uh, he does not believe it was inevitable that the Pac-12 was going to crumble. I find that interesting. Some believe, hey, it was going to happen no matter what. It was, you know, it was an avalanche. You couldn't stop the boulder. It was going down the hill. I think there were a lot of opportunities for the Pac-12 to save itself. And I still think the fact that so many smart people did so many dumb things has to be uh, one of the big mysteries in college sports. Uh, brings us to our five at five. Steven's got it today. The five biggest, baddest stories in sports. The five at five. Number one. Well, we'll start there, John. As you said, it was uh, maybe the worst kept secret in all of college football, but today it is official as the Pac-12 released a statement saying that the conference and George Klyovkov have mutually agreed to part ways his last day will be on February 29th. The conference then said they will release new details about new leadership coming in the next week. But uh, officially, George Klyovkov out as a Pac-12 commish just uh, almost reached the two-year mark as he was hired back in 20 or three-year mark. Sorry, back in 2021, uh, didn't quite get there. But George K is out as Pac-12 commissioner, and they'll be looking for a new one. Yeah, look, uh, the Pac-12 is you know going to keep him technically in that position till February 29th. I believe Teresa Gold, one of the deputy commissioners in the league, is going to be appointed as the interim commissioner. I think they will go to an interim commissioner um, position. But uh, George Klyovkov's legacy ultimately begins and ends with the fact that he did not get a media deal done. Here he is talking about the fact that he didn't announce a deal on purpose. I don't consider it frustrating. Uh, it's a reinforcement for me of um, what, what dedicated and passionate fans we have and how much people care about college athletics. And I, I get it. And at the same time, I don't want uh, the opportunity to be missed today to talk about football. It, it's, we're not announcing a media deal on purpose today because I want the focus to be on football. Wait a minute. Didn't announce a deal on purpose. In the end, he didn't have a deal. The gun was empty, so to speak. George Klyovkov out. Who will the Pac-12 appoint? Well, the conference says it will have news on that next week. Keep an eye on Teresa Gould, the former UC Davis athletic director who is 
the number two in the Pac-12 conference. They're going to need somebody to answer mail, run the social media accounts, uh, manage uh, you know the the website, all of that stuff. Oregon State and Washington State will move on. Effective July one, it will be just them. Number two. Well, it was fun for a day, but Tiger Woods he has pulled out of his tournament, the Genesis at Rivera Go Hunter Club. It was uh, he played in round two today, hit his tee shot in the seventh hole, but then was taken off the course in a golf cart, driven by a tournament official, and he has withdrew from the tournament. Uh, one point. Woods was seen with his hands or his head in his hands and a lot of frustration did not look good. But uh, Rob McNamara, Woods' good friend and executive vice president of TGR Ventures, he said that Tiger uh, began suffering flu-like symptoms on Thursday night and then Friday morning they were worse. He was then treated by physicians at the country club, but Tiger tried to tough it out, did not do that, uh, had to had to withdraw. Says uh, Woods began suffering flu-like system, symptoms. And then they got even worse on Friday morning, so he just had to uh, drop out of the tournament. It'll be interesting to, say, to see if uh, he participates in the Masters and if he can finish that up. Yeah, they're citing an illness. Uh, they're saying it was flu-like, as you say. But it, it's just one of the – it's another reminder. Like, you know, you look at Tiger, you see his talent. You, you saw the sort of the hype entering this uh, Genesis, Genesis Invitational Tournament. It's his tournament. First tournament he's played since last year's Masters. There was a lot of – excitement about it a lot of intrigue in it of course he has his you know his apparel deal with taylor made you know there's a little bit of buzz to this thing but he ends leaving the clubhouse leaving the course um they did call an ambulance but nobody else nobody was transported via ambulance he was one over 72 on on thursday withdrew today but this might just you know didn't seem like this was his back or his foot. They're saying his back's fine, his foot's fine. It's just more of a general health thing, but I just can't see the tiger of old being chased out of a tournament by a flu. Yeah, it they, just they were saying that his back is fine, but a lot of people were saying on the course it did look like he was struggling just walking around. So it's gonna be interesting one of those things, like you said, is it really just the flu like symptoms or is it something with his body health wise? Now Tiger said that he hopes to play in one tournament a month this year. And that would allow him to compete in all four majors. Now, in theory, that means he either the Arnold Palmer or the Players' Championship next month. Keep an eye on those two tournaments. Number three. Well, two juveniles were charged with crimes connected to the mass shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl rally. Uh, news released from Jackson County Family Court said the juveniles were charged on Thursday and are being detained in the county's juvenile detention center on gun-related and resisting arrest charges. The release also said it anticipated that additional charges are expected in the future uh, after the investigation by the KC Police Department wraps up and continues. No other information was released. Uh, police initially detained three juveniles, but they did release one of them as they determined that they were not involved in the shooting. But people or police are still looking for others that may, be, may have been involved. They're calling for witnesses, victims, people with cell phone videos, all that kind of stuff uh, of the violence that took place on Wednesday. Call a dedicated hotline. So it's still an open investigation, but they have charged uh, two juveniles with the uh, with connection to that mass shooting. And, you know, as they've said, John, it was not anything malicious about the the parade it stemmed from a dispute between you know some people and it turned into some gunfire which just ruined the day of a lot of people yeah it ruined the day and it killed a 44 year old woman lisa lopez galvin is the woman who was killed in the mass shooting at the victory parade and 
There is a GoFundMe account that was set up, a page that was set up for her, the Elizabeth Lopez Galvin Memorial page set up Thursday afternoon. They had a goal of raising $75,000. 1,300 people had made donations. Taylor Swift swooped in this morning, made a donation of $50,000, and then eight minutes later, another donation of $50,000. I think it was cool that Taylor Swift did that. It's really sad. Um, The fund was set up, uh, by the way, to help her two children and her husband of 22 years. Uh, According to the page, she was an amazing mother, wife, daughter, sister, aunt, cousin, and friend to so many. Um, It's terrible. It's awful. The police saying that, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have, you know, more charges. 23 people were wounded. One, so, you know, she was obviously killed. She was murdered. And... You know, someone's getting a murder charge in the end. Really sad stuff. And, you know, you shouldn't have a gun at a rally. Shouldn't be pulling a gun out and firing into a crowd at a parade. This um, just evokes such frustration. I'm so sick of this stuff, and I know a lot of you are as well. I am sick of walking into a movie theater and having to look around. I'm sick of going into a shopping mall and, and having to be on high alert I am sick of sending my children to school and then they come home and they go, oh, we had a lockdown drill today where we practiced hiding in our classroom and they say, well, we're told we turn the lights off and we get real quiet. I'm so sick of it. I'm sick of people pulling out guns and firing guns in public places. It's got to stop. I'm so over it. Number four. Well, I think we found out one of the reasons why Jimmy Garoppolo might have been so good-looking, John. Uh, today, he was suspended two games for violating the NFL's performance-enhancing substance policy. So, Jimmy G, on the PEDs, I don't know if that helps your, uh, the way you look, but can't hurt. Uh, the policy violation said to be related to Garoppolo using prescribed medication without having a valid therapeutic use exemption from the league, according to sources. Now, Garoppolo will not appeal the suspension, so he'll miss the first two games of the next year. And it was expected that Garoppolo was not going to last with the Raiders as they were expected to release him before the fifth day of the new league year in mid-March because he would earn an $11.25 million roster bonus had he been on the Raiders, and he was going to be the backup. So uh, he had an $11 million base salary guaranteed for 2024, but now that could be voided because of the suspension. Mm. But now Garoppolo uh, seems like he will be a free agent, but he'll be allowed to participate in off-season activities and training camp with any team that he signs with. Once that regular season begins, he'll be barred from his new team for those two weeks because of suspension. But Jimmy G going to be looking for a new job, probably as a backup, but uh, won't be able to play the first two games. It it looks to me like the Raiders, look, they have until the fifth day of training camp to release him. They're not going to pay him that eleven that bonus of $11.25 on the fifth day of the new league year, which happens next month. Uh, but um, I, I expect the Raiders are going to try to trade him. Like, I think they will try to move him to a team that desperately needs a backup, and they'll try to do that first. If they can find a suitor, they'll trade him and he'll be under contract. But this is a, just a disappointment. Like, Garoppolo has been such a disappointment since leaving New England, and we're starting to get the picture, um, whether it was him being skittish and not effective as a 49ers quarterback or now PEDs. Uh, and and not very good as a Raiders quarterback, and there's no way Antonio Pierce is going to want to bank his career on Jimmy G. And so the Raiders are going to move him and or release him, 
And, uh, you know, I think he'll end up somewhere else. And you're right. He's a backup. He's he not a starter. A, he can be a good backup somewhere, right? Like, if they're, if you're a good team or if you have a team that has a, you know, injury-riddled quarterback, he's not the worst option, is he? He's not the worst, but at what number? That's the question, you know. At what number? Not at what the Raiders were paying him. And so I kind of wonder if they will trade him. Will he restructure his contract? They'll try to trade him first. They're, like, they're on the phone now trying to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. They want no part of him. Number five. Pro Basketball Hall of Fame announced its class for 2024 as inductees will be announced in April. But Trailblazers head coach Chauncey Billups is on the list. Now, not as a coach, obviously. That's just uh, too soon. He's a finalist? Wow. Yes, as a head coach. uh, Worst coach? No. Uh, But he is a finalist for as a player. Uh, And for what it's worth, Chauncey Billups is one of two players, John, in NBA history who are eligible to be in the Hall of Fame a finals MVP and not in the Hall of Fame. So Chauncey may get in. The other one is Cedric Maxwell. He's the other uh, finals MVP, so there's a little fun nugget there. But 14 uh, players were announced as a finalist. There were some media members as well. But headliners, Chauncey Billups, Vince Carter, Michael Cooper, former Laker, Bo Ryan, former Wisconsin coach, Walter Davis, uh, Simone Augustus. Uh, that's about it. About it, I see for the uh, top top people to be as finalists, but Chauncey uh, could get in as a uh, as a player because you look at the class there. The class isn't super loaded at the top, and it's one of those things where if there's a lot of people in the class, maybe Chauncey doesn't get in. But it looks like Chauncey has a chance to get in as a player. Yeah, I I uh, I covered the 2004 NBA championship run. The Pistons did it. He was the Finals MVP, five game victory over the Lakers. He averaged 21 points in that series. Um, you know, he's a guy who kind of bounced around. He played for like four teams before he got traded to the Pistons. His numbers retired. Um, you know, you, you, you look at him, he, he sometimes gets overlooked, but I think he was such an influential and important part of a Detroit team that relied heavily on defense and leadership. He was a real leader on the court. I think uh, I'd be, it'll be really interesting to see of the 14 finalists who gets in, who doesn't get in. Um, Vince Carter, also among the finalists as well. Vince Carter or Chauncey Billups? Who gets in Who gets in first on your ballot? Vince Carter, but I think that's more... I mean, Vince is such a compiler. Like, he played for so many years. I mean, he played in, like, he played in the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and the 2020s. Like, I mean, that's just so impressive that he did that. So, I think Vince, Vince gets in over Chauncey Billups as my number one, but I think Chauncey does get in as the number two. The finals MVP really helps him, John. If he did not win that NBA Finals MVP, I don't think there's a chance Chauncey gets in. But the fact that he has that, that 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 because like you said, he was so important to that Detroit team. He really was the leader of how they played basketball. Like he was the guy, he was the guy that took all the big shots. Obviously, Mr. Big Shot. Uh yeah, I, I think Chauncey gets in, but I would give it Vince first. Vince over Chauncey. I think he's really fortunate. And and again, this is one of these things in sports where right player, right team, right time. He was on that team that had Ben Wallace and Rasheed Wallace and Tayshawn Prince, and he just fit. And he didn't fit at other places, other stops earlier in his career. Uh, also among the finalists, uh, Michael Cooper, former Lakers guard. Walter Davis, who was uh, just a star with the Phoenix Suns, all-time leading scorer in their franchise history. Former Wisconsin coach Bo Ryan uh, in there as well. And uh, Doug Collins. And uh, also NBA legend Jerry West, who went in as a player, but is also being nominated now as a contributor. So there you go. Charles Smith, again, uh, also among those who were 
nominated, I guess, as a finalist. I, I think Chauncey's going to get in. But as far as the star power, like the, the pop or the wow, I think, you know, Vince Carter has got more of that star power than Chauncey Billups. But I think he's going to get in. That is the five at five, the five biggest stories that are going on in sports. Uh, we'll have punch and audio coming up. we got great sound today. We have scoured the planet. We have the best sound from all around, and we're excited to share it with you, uh, as we are every day on the program. I also think, like, by the way, is there a is there a future Hall of Famer on this Blazers roster? No, not no. Well, nobody that nobody that could even blossom, right? Like, there's not even like a second year player. Scoot Henderson, you don't see him as a Hall of Famer, right? Nobody, right? I mean, it would be Scoot. Scoot's the answer. He's the most likely because the other good players, DeAndre Ayton, no. Jeremy Grant, no. Like, they were good pros but not close to Hall of Famers. I think I think Scoot Henderson would be the correct answer as who's the closest or who has the best chance. I would say. But, but would, you, would you put money on Scoot Henderson making it to the Hall of Fame? Uh, no. I wouldn't. No. <laughs> I think he could get into the Hall of OK. You'd have to give like, me good odds on that one. You know, I think uh, DeAndre Ayton, he can't even get out of his driveway. So, you know, if he, on, a, on an icy day, he's not getting into the hall of anything. All right, coming up, we have Punch and Audio. Uh, among other things, Dylan Gabriel, Oregon's acquisition at the quarterback position. How good will he be? Josh Pate has got some sound on that. The owner of the Phoenix Suns says he's all in. We'll hear him. You'll hear from Scoot Henderson, plus Nick Wright. Describing his experience at the parade, Caitlin Clark has made history, but is she getting too much credit? We'll talk about it coming up. All of that's still ahead here in the happy hour. Appreciate that you're along for the ride. Leave it right here. It'll be a big weekend in uh, college basketball. Oregon State women tipping off tonight, 7 o'clock. They are at home at Gill Coliseum, number 11 Oregon State playing number 9 UCLA tonight, 7 o'clock. The game's on the Pac-12 Networks, if you want to uh, check that out. Also, uh, over the weekend, I'm uh, interested to see uh, Washington State and uh, see whether or not they draw tomorrow against Stanford. A little more than 2,700 fans showed up in Pullman, Washington, to see a team that, is going to go to the NCAA tournament unless it face plants. I think it's a Sweet 16 team. Steven, before I get into Punch It Audio, why why isn't anybody showing up in Pullman? Why isn't anybody going to see Washington State play basketball? 2,700 fans. <laughs> it's crazy. I know. I don't... I think it's because the, it's the first year of it, right? If had they made the NCAA tournament maybe a year or two before or had any type of postseason success, maybe it's a little bit different. But I also think that you look at their team and it's not like they have any NBA players on their team. And so I feel like, and I said this with the women's college basketball game, you asked me about, you know, is the women's college game going to be as popular as Caitlin Clark? Like, I feel like it's such a, uh, you know, it's such a regional game now that if you don't have that transcendent star, it's still hard to produce, you know, fans, especially on the West coast. Like, you know, us in the PAC 12, they're not a big basketball conference. You go to the ACC, they're the big 10. They're going to have fans no matter what. And I think it's just kind of the momentum that they have over the Pac-12 and always had over the Pac-12, you got to have a lot of success to be getting fans in the arena. So I think if it continues into next season, like they make the tournament, win a game, I think the fans will show out next season. But it's one of the things it's you got to too late. You got to have proof, too of, late. proof you, of performance, though. They're they nineteen and six. 
They're ten and four. I agree. They're I half I, game I, out of first. I'd what? be all over it, John. I'd be there yeah. in the front row every single game. But I, they, I, I think yeah. the fans just need to see more proof of performance. They play Stanford tomorrow at three o'clock. Um, Stanford, uh, uh, you know, anal- radio analyst, uh, friend of the show, uh, was listening to our show in hour one. I got a note from him, uh, John Platts, who was. Uh, uh, a regular listener to the show, and he's also uh, on Stanford Radio, former Stanford athlete. Uh, you know, he'll be there at the game, and it would uh, it'll be interesting to see if they draw it all tomorrow, three o'clock. There's no Super Bowl, there's no football. You know, you're in Pullman, Washington. You got a great basketball team playing a three o'clock tip-off game. Show up and support them if you're a Washington State fan. Like, you know, Kyle Smith might not be there. After this season, so we'll see what happens. Let's play some punch it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, George Klyovkov is out officially in the Pac-12. The Pac-12 conference made it official today. Effective February 29th, he will no longer be the conference commissioner. And in fact, he's probably gone now. Here's Klyovkov talking about the arrival of Coach Prime to Colorado and the investment in football made by Colorado. He is a proven winning coach. Sure, exactly. So I don't think calling it an experiment is, is fair. Okay. Uh, what I will say is, um, for me, it's another example of our school making an investment on football and getting an immediate return on that investment. Um, season ticket sales, sponsorships, donors, the collective, everything is stepping up to support Deion Sanders. And I welcome him to the conference. I think it's going to be great for the conference. I, you know, Their first two games next year are on the road at TCU. That's going to be a great game. I can't imagine what the ratings are going to be for that game. And their second game is a home game against Nebraska. And it all came true. And now it moves on without George K. It's really interesting. I, I, I was kind of thinking they might let him go to Vegas to T-Mobile Arena for the conference championship games. But can you imagine the Boo Birds that would have come out at T-Mobile? So I guess he had to depart before the Pac-12 tournament. Klyovkov's out. The conference says they will address who the commissioner will be or who the acting or interim commissioner will be next week. Pay attention to that. Be interesting to see how that unfolds. Scoot Henderson says he had a welcome to the NBA moment. Here's Scoot. Punch it. My first game against Russell Westbrook, you know, just always growing up watching Russell Westbrook highlights and stuff. Um, he played me and they, and they whooped us. And I was like, all right, I'm here now, so let's turn it up a notch. Did he do anything crazy with you? Um, yeah, he, he came through it, and like, he just like he bumped me. I'm like, okay, yeah, he's kind of strong, so yeah, I had to, yeah, yeah, for sure. Scoot Henderson, um, you know, I keep waiting for him to kind of have a breakout performance, breakout stretch. He's averaging about 13 points a game, four, four and a half, five assists a game. Um. You know, he's good for 14 or 15 on most nights. He had 30 against Denver maybe a couple weeks ago. I, I just, it's hard for me on this team with this, with what's around Scoot Henderson to assess 
what he is, who he is. Um, I, it's a little bit inconsistent for me. Stephen, are you impressed with him to this point? Like, I thought we'd be talking about him as the solid number two rookie in the NBA. And he's just, he's not. There's Victor Wimbanyama, and then he's kind of in a group after that. Yeah, and I think he's more towards the bottom of that second group. As you said, so far, there has been a lot of signs of him playing better. And everything that I've heard from the organization and from people in there is that he works incredibly hard. And I think for me, as a 19-year-old point guard, that's what I want to see. I want to see a guy that understands his his limitedness in certain areas and work on that. And... To all, to what everyone says, he is doing that. Because at the start of the year, the explosion wasn't even there that we thought he would have. And now there's been some explosive plays at the rim that you've seen where he's getting by guys and actually finishing at the rim and showing some improvement. So I still have hope that Scoot can be really good. But we're getting to the point where, you know, we're over halfway through this, his first season and it hasn't necessarily clicked. And so I think there is there is room to worry about it, John, that maybe he's not going to be as good as we once thought he could be. Uh, but there are signs, I will say. There are some good signs that he can still play in this league. And I think, at worst, he's a guy that tries on defense. He's a guy that hustles. And I think that's something that the Blazers haven't had you know, for a while. Yeah, try hard. It will get you so far. I mean, I and I appreciate it. I But I expect him to work hard. I expect all the Blazers players to work hard. They just need to be better. I'm having a hard time assessing how good a coach Chauncey Billups is, how good a player Scoot Henderson is. I'm having a hard time with that. All I can tell is whoever's showing up at Moda Center, I know this. You're a hell of a fan because you're watching a team that's losing and losing and losing. Caitlin Clark needed eight points last night to become the NCAA all-time career women's basketball scoring leader. She got it. 106-89 to over Michigan, and she talked about it afterwards. Punch it. You pull up from a logo three. What was going through your mind in that moment? Well, Holly, that was the only way to do it, so I had to. I told some of my teammates and my coaches, like, if I got a chance in transition, I'm going to launch one. And honestly, I didn't know if it was going to go in because it was, it was a deep one, but then it goes in and Coach Wooder calls timeout. And I'm just thankful to be surrounded by these people, this place. Um, I'm just so grateful, honestly. Kaylin Clark might be the most impressive, recognizable, interesting player in college basketball, men's or women's. She scored 49, career-high program record, historic night at Carver-Hawkeye Arena, Iowa City. Um, Really connects with fans. It's interesting. Uh, I'm not saying she's the best all-time player ever. Give me Cheryl Miller, right? Uh, But she's the most interesting college basketball player right now. You know, and maybe it's because on the men's side, there's no, you know, certifiable number one overall pick who's lingering around and wowing people just the I, I just think Caitlin Clark's got something magical going be interesting to see if she ends up at the Portland Regional I'll come back to that I'll keep coming back to it Nick Wright well he was doing a show with FS1 in Kansas City for 15 seconds he did not know where his wife and and her sisters were in the crowd he was there at the parade and rally for the Kansas City Chiefs. Here's his experience. Punch it. We're doing the show, and we get in our ears from our producer in New York. Guys, not joking. Listen. Active shooter. Have to get off the stage, because we're in an elevated place, and go. And Fox had security there, and they were 
outstanding. These two guys, they were. I mean, they were. They they kept their heads on straight. But my my issue was my wife and her two sisters were with me at the parade, but in the crowd. They weren't watching the show, so they were in the crowd. So the Fox security is trying to get us that way, and I need to find them. And that 15 seconds of not knowing where my wife and her sisters were uh, is the the worst moment of my life. And it's not about me. Listen, a lady lost her life. Uh, kids lost their mother. Two dozen, nearly two dozen other people were shot. A lot of them children. So I, again, my trauma was about as small as one can have in the situation. And it still is the worst moment of my life. So for thousands and thousands of people, so many of which are children, this now, you know, is with them. Yeah, it's with them, and it's forever with kids in Kansas City who may try to go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade or Thanksgiving Day Parade or Christmas Parade and will not be able to go without thinking about the incident that happened at the parade for the Kansas City Chiefs. There is an impact and a trauma that goes beyond the heinous, right? And and what I mean by that is Nick Wright is absolutely correct in, in saying that the damage that was done in his circle pales in comparison to the life that was lost that we talked about last segment. But there's still a halo effect and damage just to the general psyche of people that just doesn't go away and i you know for people who have endured being in public settings where there is gunfire or being in a school where god forbid you know somebody walks through the doors with a weapon uh or a shopping mall or a movie theater um you know i think nick wright speaking for a lot of people there it's just again i'm sick of it sick of it matt ishbia is the owner of the phoenix suns Remember at the opening segment today, I talked about hands-on, hands-off. What kind of owner do you want? He says he's going to be hands-on and all-in. Punch it. Are you hands-on? with Because you know basketball, obviously. Played oh, college. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of owners that played collegiate basketball at Michigan State or won a national championship. Oh, yeah, I assume you're pretty hands-on with the whole operation? Every detail. I mean, that's how I run my mortgage business. I run the basketball business. Every detail from the trades I made with the women's team. We just made a great trade for Clea Copper on the women's side, the Mercury, like the NBA involved with everything. I got great people around me. They actually helped me do all the stuff, and I have to give my thoughts to You too. just want to know about it. Oh, yeah. I'm very involved with it. Like I said, you got to talk. I mean, I, I, I can watch a little film. I'm not, I'm not James Jones, my GM, but I'll watch Beast. it and talk to him and strategize. But I love being involved with it because I love basketball. I know the game a little bit. But if you want to be great at something, you got to be all in. And I'm all in with the Phoenix Suns and Mercury. All in, except my hope is that he doesn't try to pretend that he knows the NBA or WNBA better than the coaches and the general managers. And that's the danger. You want an owner who leans forward in their chair. You want them leaning into the product. You want them leading into the outcomes. You want them vested. You want him to be the biggest fan, right? He's got he's a stakeholder, literally. But you don't want him acting like he knows better. And there's a fine line there. And he played college basketball at Michigan State. And you just you kind of want him engaged, but. You, there needs to be boundaries. There needs to be a boundary between the product 
And then the people on the management and ownership side. You know, the people on the management and ownership side, if they could do it, if Matt Ishbia could do it, he'd be on the court. He'd be coaching an NBA team. If he could do it, he would be a general manager of an NBA team with a bunch of banners in the rafters. You know, there's a line there where, like, you have to recognize you're not capable of doing it, and you probably don't know what goes into actually doing it. Like, actually being able to pull off playing, putting together a roster, coaching a team. And if you don't recognize that boundary as a manager or an owner, there's problems. Doesn't he sound like he's going to be a little too hands-on? Yes. Yes. That scares me if I'm a Suns fan, if I hear that. It's like, you know, almost like if you go to like a, you know, you go to a media company and you got like the president of ESPN. And the president of ESPN is watching some show with Pat McAfee on. And and I'll side I'll take I'll take the rare occasion of siding with McAfee because that was his his interview there with Matt Ishbia. If the president of ESPN hires a director of programming who then hires Pat McAfee and puts him in that noon slot on ESPN and equips him with good production team, everything he needs to win. Great. And then get out of the way, right? Like, give him the equipment and get out of the way. You know, you don't see Tommy Lasorda out on the mound going, Fernando Valenzuela, you don't know how to throw this screwball. Let me show you how to do it. Like, you know, no. He puts him in the game. Then what does he do? Goes back to the dugout and he lets him pitch. So, you know, Ishbia sounds a little bit to me like he wants to throw the pitch. So I'm kind of left thinking, like, you know, if you don't know that you can't do it and you're the owner, there is a problem. Get out of the way and let the people who can do it do it. But I guess it's better than what we got in Portland. Well, <laughs> what you got in Portland <laughs> is everybody's looking in the dugout going, where's the manager? What game are we playing? You know, Chauncey Billups, you know, we talked about him being a finalist for the Hall of Fame, had to be a pretty good week by, you know, in, in his last couple years. You know what I mean? Like, it has there hasn't been a lot of winning success. It's a moment where Chance can go, you know, it's not all me. Man, I there, could play. There was a point in life where I was really good at basketball. <laughs> Let me tell you guys, gather around. Everybody gather around. He's been booed, you know. Uh, Jonathan Jones talking about Jimmy G. Jimmy Garoppolo looking for a home, potentially tested positive for PEDs. He's going to get a two-game suspension with the Raiders. What will the Raiders do? Here's Jonathan Jones punching. Uh, certainly there will be a spot for him, probably at a veteran minimum deal uh, with a team uh, to be a backup because I don't think anyone would disagree that he's certainly a capable backup. But because of the injury and now, frankly, because – of the first two-game suspension that he's going to be serving, uh, someone that you cannot rely on to be uh, the main signal caller. Can't rely on him. Don't bank on him. We've seen him. I've seen enough of Jimmy Garoppolo to know that he's a backup in in the NFL. Frankly, we should have just listened to Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick had him. If he wanted him, he wouldn't have traded him. It's like my grandfather said. My grandfather left Italy. And I said, why'd you leave Italy? And he says, you know, if it was any damn good, I wouldn't have left it. 
you know, Jimmy Garoppolo, if he's any damn good, the Patriots were not going to let him get away. Jim Nance talking to Dan Patrick. Remember Nance's call in the Super Bowl? Jackpot, he said. Jim Nance explaining to Dan Patrick where he got the reference. It was a nod to Brent Musburger. Punch it. I knew I wanted to put something uh, that had to do with Las Vegas. And then, moreover, you sparked it. You had Brent on last week, Brent Musburger, right before I came on the show. And I had had dinner the previous evening with Brent. And I idolized Brent. I have since I walked in the door in 1985. And Brent was the play-by-play voice of the Raiders up until a year ago. And he used to use jackpot in his touchdown calls Hmm. for the Raiders. So during the broadcast, they introduced the next Hall of Fame class to be inducted in Canton in August. And, I mean, it just came to me as they were out there. And it just came to me on the spot, kind of like Jackpot did, that this was a window with a very big audience to get across the message that you started. And that was that Brent Musburger needs to receive the Pete Rozelle Award for media excellence and be in the broadcaster's wing of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think it's really cool that Jim Nance is saying that, but I don't believe he came up with jackpot on the spot. I think he was he had that sucker in the holster. He pulled it out a couple of times, maybe wanted to use it in the second quarter, maybe wanted to use it at the end of regulation and saved it for the overtime. Um, here's the I mean, here's the dirty little secret. I mean, it's nice that to see one broadcaster advocating for another. But I don't think most fans care. If Brent Musburger's in the Hall of Fame, I don't think they care that you know the ba- that uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame is putting uh, Jay Adonde in the Writers' Wing with the Kurt Gowdy Award. I I think that stuff matters more to the media than it does to fans. I think fans care about the Hall of Fame itself, but it's I guess it's nice to see Nance advocating for another broadcaster because a lot of what you see in media is you see backbiting and you see people who. Uh, aren't happy for each other. You know, like Charles Barkley and Skip Bayless. I'll play that coming up. Charles Barkley has got a problem with Skip Bayless. You know, I worked with Skip Bayless. Well, Chuck's not that far from the truth here. I'll play his clip after the break. we got a great crew here at 750 The Game. If you're listening in uh, Portland, who podcast every interview and the show if you miss anything, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can share it with friends and family members. It becomes uh, a really, uh, really unique opportunity for you to share something that you've heard or liked. And frankly, if you miss any of the show, you can uh, you can grab it and you can digest it in uh, your time, whether you're running or on a plane or in your backyard or just if there's something you uh, you go, man, I missed that part of the show. Make sure you get the podcast. Appreciate everybody who makes the podcast and this radio show part of their day. Really, been doing it 17 years. Um, Really excited and interested to see what comes next uh, with this show. And certainly we've had huge guests on the show over the years. Uh, Started with President Obama on the very first day we did the show, and even uh, today having Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, on, and Kyle Smith, the Washington State men's basketball coach, on. I love getting those guests on the show. So thank you for being here. Part of the reason why those guests come on the show is they know that the audience is an absolute army. I want to give a shout-out, too, to uh, 
some of our longtime sponsors of the show, uh, including, uh, you know, Bess at uh, Gresham Ford. Shout out to Bess and Preston and the team there and Brad and the team at First Call Heating and Cooling and the Shoe Mill Shoe Store family and High Caliber Mill Rights. Brandon and the uh, team there do a fantastic job. And, um, you know, I could go on and on and on about the longtime sponsors of the show and and uh but you know i just tell you like you know support the sponsors uh kevin and the team at bridgetown window and door uh great uh great family run business um they got their new showroom open that they're using to uh, help people visualize like what new windows and new doors are i went out to the showroom this week to check it out you know i wanted i thanked kevin i said man i appreciate you man remember when the pandemic hit and, you know, Kevin and his team at Bridgetown Window and Door, they were scared like every other business. And they were going, what are people going to do? Are you know, are we going to have to are we going to have to, uh, you know, furlough people? And lo and behold, what happened is uh, Kevin, you know, continued to advertise on this show. And you listeners responded and you were home like the rest of us. And you said, you know what, this is the right time to put in windows and doors. And we uh, we kind of. Uh, kind of shared that experience this week. I was like, remember that? And he was like, yeah, it was terrifying. And uh, what came out of it was a lot of people putting, you know, and investing in their homes. Uh, but I want to thank all the sponsors who have uh, been here near and far. Uh, I want to finish today with Charles Barkley and Skip Bayless. They're in a spat. It relates to, it goes way back. I mean, it really goes way back. And it's part of Skip's shtick, right? Say outlandish things, get outlandish reactions. It's, it's kind of the game. Skip Bayless said this on his show, uh, in his panel discussion. He said Andy Reid better than Bill Belichick. That without Tom Brady as his quarterback, Bill Belichick is 21 games under 500. He's 64 and 85 in games that Tom Brady didn't start at quarterback for him. And once Tom got kicked out the back door in New England, Bill went 29 and 38. And in the four years, made it to one playoff game and lost that game 47 to 17. Yes. And I always give it up to you guys. I say he's the greatest defensive mind ever. I give you that. But in the end, that means he was a glorified defensive coordinator for a dynasty because he ran the defense while Tom effectively ran the offense Stop. and made all the late plays to win all those Super Bowls. Tom won the first six Super Bowls with game-winning drives in the fourth quarter. So, Char so Charlie Weiss wasn't called. So Charlie Weiss and, and Josh McDaniels was never <laughs> Tom Brady was calling the sure. plays and designing everything. Well, I, right. I, Tom took that offense over after about two years. And you always say his second Super Bowl was game management. It, 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 All he did was throw for 354 yards in a shootout with Carolina, and he was the MVP. I don't know. That wasn't game Michael, management. Michael, uh, better yet, Skip. All right, there's Skip Bayless throwing that out. Charles Barkley pushing back. And let me tell you how stupid some of these guys are on television. Uh, you know how much I hate Skip Bayless. I, I hate him with every fiber. You know, I really, sometimes he makes me want to gain weight back so I can hate him with even more weight. <laughs> you know, you know, he, he goes on television and says, uh, if it wasn't for Bill, uh, if it wasn't for Tom Brady, Bill wouldn't have, all these championships. And I'm like, well, <clears throat> Bill's a, the greatest coach ever. And he says, well, he only won the Super Bowls because of Tom Brady. Well, Andy Reid's a great coach. Exactly how many championships he won without Patrick Mahomes. And part of this is Andy Reid and the Chiefs had the foresight to draft Patrick Mahomes 
and sit on Patrick Mahomes, who was injured during his rookie season. And Bill Belichick with the Patriots had the foresight to pick Tom Brady when nobody else would and stash him on the roster. And yes, it blossomed beautifully. And guess what? Kyle Shanahan picked Brock Purdy in the, with the last pick, and it blossomed beautifully despite wanting Trey Lance. I mean, we can make these narratives up all day long. Bill Walsh picked Joe Montana. You know, Don Shula had Dan Marino. Like, we could do this all day long. It doesn't take anything away from Belichick. And, in fact, in the same way that Phil Jackson is heralded as a guy who managed Michael Jordan. Remember, he wasn't Jordan's first coach. And managed Shaq and Kobe. Can we not just give credit where it's due these days? I get it, Skip. It's outlandish. I love what Charles said about gaining weight. Uh, I think that's funny. But in the end, I think you got to give credit where it's due. It can be true that Andy Reid's a great coach. It can also be true that Bill Belichick's a sensational coach, but without Tom Brady, it didn't quite work. Or maybe at the end of his career, it didn't quite work. Those things uh, are not mutually exclusive. The bald-faced truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. I appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. We're back next week. we got great shows and big guests next week. Make sure you're following 750 The Game on the socials. Hey, it's Gonzano. i got to be honest with you. I think about this every sporting event I go to. I'm grateful that I can see. I couldn't always see, though. I can remember being on press row and realizing my vision was fading and squinting and trying to read names and numbers, and it was frustrating and getting tough to drive at different times. Well, I had a LASIK procedure, and it was a game changer for me. You can do the same with King LASIK. All you have to do is get online at kinglasik.com and start exploring. You can ask your questions. You can do a free Zoom consultation. You can research the entire LASIK procedure right there from the comfort of your home. King LASIK, they are fantastic. Dr. King has done more LASIK procedures than any doctor in the Pacific Northwest. That's real experience, and that's what you want. So, yes, when you're at a sporting event next and you're squinting or can't really see the names or the numbers, uh, you might be thinking like I thought. Go to kinglasik.com and get your journey to better vision started right away. kinglasik.com.